Well, here we go. Everybody probably knows what I'm getting ready to say, so let's just do it. Turn with me, if you will, to the place where this week's Torah portion begins. It is about a third of the way through Exodus chapter 30, and that would be verse 11. So a turn there. We'll find that the first two words that are unique in the parsha after says, And Yahuwah spoke to Moshe, and here's what he said. When you take ki tisa, when you take uh, et, okay, well, et means uh, w- w- this telling us what we're getting ready to take. Rosh benai Israel. Okay, Rosh's head. When you take the head of the children of Israel, so literally, the uh, what it says here is when you lift up the head, or when you um, we would say do a census, take a count. But we count by lifting up the head. So when you do that, when you take the sum of the children of Israel, according to the number, every man will give a ransom for his soul unto Yahuwah. When you number them, so, now this is always interesting, when, there's, when you number them so that there's no plague among them. When you number them. Okay, here's what they're going to give. Everyone that passes among them that are numbered, half a shekel, the shekel of the sanctuary, 20 geras, half a shekel for an offering to Yahuwah. Everyone that passes among them numbered, everybody from 20 years old and upward, shall give the offering of Yahuwah. The rich won't give more, the poor won't give less than this half shekel. When they give this offering to Yahuwah to make atonement for your nefshim. Uh, it's actually uh, for your nef. Um, Nefesh tekem, so it's y'all's souls. Then you take this money, this silver kasef, from the Benai Israel and appoint it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may be for a memorial for the Benai Israel, the children of Israel before Yahuwah, to make atonement again for your souls, plural. And then Yahuwah spoke to Moshe and he said, uh, You shall also make a laver out of brass. And the brass, the base of it's out of brass. This is where you're going to wash, and you'll put it between the tent of meeting and the altar. Put water in it. And Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands on the feet there whenever they go into the tent of meeting. They'll wash with water. And here it is again, so that they die not. Or when they come near to the altar to minister, to cause an offering made by fire uh, to smoke before Yahuwah. And they wash their hands and their feet, again it says, so that they die not. This will be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his seed throughout their generation. So I always like to point out when it says a statute forever, that's an important thing. And um, interestingly, this can't be done right now. The reason is because they don't have this labor. They're, they're the Kohanim don't even necessarily know who they are, although there may be some genetic markers. But by and large, uh, they don't know, and there's no place for them to do this. But still, it does say a statute forever. So I guess that would mean if the other uh, preconditions existed, they would still be doing it. Moreover, Yahuwah spoke to Moshe, and he said, Take also unto yourself the chief spices, flowing myrrh, get 500 shekels of that, of sweet cinnamon, half as much, so 250 shekels, and uh, of sweet calamus, also 250, of cassia, 500, after the shekel of the sanctuary, and of olive oil, get a hen. So make from this a holy anointing oil, a perfume compounded, after the art of the perfumer, and it shall be a holy anointing oil. So basically what it's saying here is, uh, you might not know how to do it, but the fellow who does perfuming as an art form, in other words, has that skill, uh, they will know what is necessary to do here. And with this, you shall anoint the tent of meeting, the mishkan, and the ark of the testimony, and the table, and all the vessels, the menorah, and the vessels of that, and the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all of its vessels, the lava and the base. You'll set them apart, sanctify them, so that they may be most uh, kodesh, 
And that uh, that word again, Kodesh, Kodeshim, um, double set apart, most holy. Whoever touches them also needs to be set apart, Kodesh. And you shall anoint Aaron and his sons, set them apart, sanctify them, that they may minister to me in the office of Cohen. And you shall speak to the Benai Israel and say this, This is a holy, holy um, anointing oil to me throughout your generations. Onto the flesh of man you shall not pour it, nor are you to make anything like it, according to the composition of, uh, it is holy, Kadesh, and it is to be holy unto you. So if that wasn't clear enough, don't make anything like it, we follow that with this. Whoever does compound anything like it, or whoever puts any of this on a stranger, he shall be cut off from his people. Now, cut off is serious. A lot of folks will suggest that cut off literally means cut off as in permanently and terminally. Um, But it sometimes says that directly. So I tend to think cut off means uh, exiled at minimum, but maybe, maybe more. Yehuda then said to Moshe, Take unto you sweet spices, uh, stacte, anica, and galbanum. Sweet spices with pure frankincense. Of each, uh, you need a like weight. And make that into incense, a perfume after the art of the perfumer. So here's this. Uh, he'll know how to do it again, this person with this skill. Seasoned with salt, pure, and kadosh. And you beat some of it very small. Put it before the testimony in the tent of meeting, and there I will meet with you. It is to you most holy. There it is again. Kadesh Kadeshim. And the incense which you shall make according to the composition thereof, you are not to make anything like it for yourselves. This is to be set apart unto you, holy Kadosh. Again, set apart for Yahuwah. Anyone who does try to make something like it, to smell what it smells like, he shall be cut off from his people. Now, I didn't mention this. We're going to see another a really interesting set of layouts here. And then uh, the history is going to proceed with probably one of the most tragic incidents, in uh, not only in Scripture, but perhaps in human history. All right. Uh, Yahuwah spoke to Moshe and said, Look, I have called by name this fellow uh, Betzalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him, literally, with the Ruach Elohim, the spirit of Yah in wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge, all kinds of workmanship. Turns out this guy is going to be able to do darn near anything. He is a one-skilled fellow. To devise skillful works, to work in gold and silver and brass, cutting stones for setting, wood carving, all manner of workmanship. And I, behold, I have appointed with him a holy av. A holy av. Okay, we know that last word, av, means father. Uh, Ohel, remember, is the word for tent. So it looks like the meaning of this is father's tent, or tent of the father. Oholiav, son of Ahisamach, he is of the tribe of Dan. And in the hearts of all that are wise-hearted, I've put wisdom that I may make, that they may make, all that I have commanded you. So here is the assistant for Betzalel, Oholiav, and uh, they are basically going to supervise a whole lot of stuff being made for the Mishkan. Tent of meeting, the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark cover, and all the furniture of the uh, the Ohel, along with the table and its vessels, the menorah, all of its vessels, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering, all of its vessels, the laver and the base, the plated garments, the holy garments that we've talked about here a couple weeks back. For Aaron the Kohen, garments for his son to minister in the office of uh, the Kohanim. The holy anointing oil, the incense of sweet spices for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. 
And then Moshe spoke to, uh, and then Yahuwah spoke to Moshe, and he said the following. Now, before I do this one, I'll mention this. I won't go into great detail. If people haven't heard this before, suffice it to say, this is one of the more interesting structures in the book. It is a... Um, it's called a chiasm in English. As you know, I like the Hebrew understanding better because I think it's more graphic and it's easier to picture. It's called an atbash. Atbash, right? Aleph Tav, that's the first two letters. Well, Aleph and Tav, that's the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Tav is the last, right? Yahushua uh, said, I am the Aleph Tav, the beginning and the end. Okay, well, so there's the beginning and the end. And then the next word, Beit and then Sheen. So Aleph Tav, Beit Sheen, Atbash. Uh, that's the uh, second to first and second to last letter. So it describes these nested brackets. And that's what we're going to see here, nested brackets. So uh, as we go through this, I'll point out sets of words that literally set off the text. And uh, this should kind of leap off the page. It's kind of like a flashing red light, if you will, in the Hebrew language to say, pay attention, uh, something inside these brackets down here uh, as you go through the nesting is really important. So here we go. Speak unto the Benai Israel, say the following. Verily, you shall keep my Sabbaths. So there's part A of the Atbash. Keep my Sabbaths. This is an oath, a sign, between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know... Oh, we know what he's going to say here. He says it a lot. Ki ani Yahuwah, who sets you apart, who makes you Kadosh, makes you all Kadosh. So it's um, me uh, Kadosh Kim. Makes the plural of y'all, Kadosh. And you shall keep or guard, that word there is Shamar, the root word, Shamar, Shema, uh, plural in this case, the Sabbath, because it is set apart unto you, Kadosh, holy. Everyone that profanes it shall surely be put to death. Anyone that does any work therein, his soul shall be cut off from among his people. So we literally have, so far, uh, essentially four structures of phraseology uh, that we're going to see here. Uh, and it's uh, I got it labeled in my, in my margins A, B, C, and D. And here we go. Well, let's cut ahead for a second. Um, after whatever comes in verse 15, it says, Hey, remember, anyone who does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Well, we just read that. That was in the verse right above it, verse 14. So that's the D part. Again, that's the innermost parentheses or closed uh, open bracket, and then the, the following closed bracket after that. So what's in the middle? Ah, this must be important. You'd think that um, people would be able to read this and recognize that it's important. Six days shall work be done. Hey, have we heard this before? Yeah, six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, set apart, kadosh, holy unto Yahuwah. And that's it. Lots of flashing red lights surrounding this particular concept. Six days, work shall be done. Seventh is a Sabbath of rest. No, not Jewish. It is to yod Hey vav Hey. It's his Sabbath. He says so. And if you missed it before, now he's put it in flashing red lights, brackets, and nested parentheses. It's very important. And furthermore, it's so important that the innermost nested parentheses says anybody does any work on shall be cut off from his people. And just in case uh, that's not clear, in the D part on the close parentheses, he adds this, well, he shall be put to death, surely. So that's the reason why people say, oh, cut off, put to death? Yeah, uh, there's a similarity there. Understand that. 
Wherefore, the Benai Israel shall keep the Sabbath, to observe the Sabbath throughout your generations for a perpetual covenant. Now, that's, that's up there with the A and B parts, right? Throughout your generations. And then finally, here comes the final close bracket. It is an oath, a sign between me and the Benai Israel, Olam, forever. Le'olam. Because in six days, you who made heaven and earth, um, Hashemayim, Bayet Ha'aretz, and on the seventh day, he ceased from his work and he rested. So there is the structure of the Atbash, the Chiasm, and the innermost part here, six days you shall work. And he even repeats that again. Six days he made heaven and earth. Seventh day, he rested, you shall too. Then it says this in the last verse in chapter 31. And he capitalized, gave unto Moshe when he'd made an end of speaking with him upon Mount Sinai, the two tables, lechat, or chot, lechot, of the testimony, tablets of stone, written literally with the very finger of Elohim. All right, there's the setup. Moshe now has the tablets, and he's been up on the mountain for quite a while, 40 days and 40 nights. And here comes chapter 32, uh, the beginning of um, arguably the tragic, um, probably maybe after Adam's fall itself, one of the most tragic events in all of history and scripture. People saw that Moshe delayed. He didn't come down when they thought he should have from the mountain. So they gathered themselves together unto Aaron. Now, this is an interesting word here, gathered. And it's ale kahal. Kahal. We've heard this term kahal. It's the first time this appears in the book. But we're going to see it a lot, gathering together. As a matter of fact, kahal is often used for the, the gathering. The people gather together. Kahal is a word for assembly, a fellowship. That's what they did. It's a, it's a verb in this case. And they called themselves together, and they hauled themselves unto Aaron, and they said unto him, Hey, look, make us gods, Elohim, who shall go before us. Because you know what? This guy Moshe, that man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So 41 days or so, uh, maybe they miscounted, but in any case, already they've given up on the guy. Moshe says to him, now notice, this is almost um, slam bam, thank you ma'am. Do, do we see Aaron, and I misspoke just then, do we see Aaron saying, uh, wait a minute, uh, take a time out here? Nope, it just says, Aaron says, break off some golden rings in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, bring them to me. Well, that was easy. How much coercion did he need? Doesn't sound, at least, based on what we see right here, like it was too big of a deal. All the people broke off their golden rings and their ears, and they brought them unto Aaron. So he received it from their hand, and he fashioned it. First use that we see here with this one, uh, this word here, um, Egel, made a graving tool. He used a graving tool or a mask or a screen. Uh, it's not exactly clear, but somehow or other he took this material, and he made it into a an Egel Maseka. Okay, calf is that word, egel, maseka. Um, molten is how it's usually rendered. And they said, huh? Listen to what they said. They said, here is your God, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, I'm going to say, hey, this is not a big deal, right? We see this in Christianity every week. Make a little figurine. Not supposed to do that, but let's just do it anyway. And say, here's your God. Here's a representation of your God. Seems like he doesn't like that. And, and it turns out in this case, he's not going to like it a lot. It's a problem. And by the way, it's always a problem. Always. 
a problem, especially when you when you hear them say things like, "Here's your God, O Israel." Get your little bunnies, your eggs, your... You know, if you look, once you see it, it's hard to unsee the amount of idolatry that's hanging around out here. Uh, this is just the first and perhaps most tragic example, but um, it has not stopped. Aaron saw this, so he built an altar before this thing. And Aaron made a proclamation, and he said the following. Now listen to his quote. It almost sounds like he's trying to pull some kind of a, a Fauci or something and to say something different than what he knows. Tomorrow we'll have a feast to Yahuwah. A hog lay Yahuwah. And uh, yeah, you could be forgiven for thinking a uh, hog means in this case they're going to they're sacrifice a pig because that's almost as, as bad as what they did. So they rose up early in the morning. They offered burnt offerings, peace offerings, shalomim. People sat down to eat and drink. And they rose up to, ahem, here's an interesting word, to make merry. Le zachak. Right? That's the same root word. We've seen it before. Laugh. Laughter. A little little joviality. Maybe a little bit of ha-ha, hubba-hubba, nookie-nookie. The word seems to have a sexual connotation. I think that part is really clear. Exactly what they did, we're not sure. But make merry, uh, at least when I see the English rendering here, I think it probably tends to understate just a bit exactly what was going on here. Uh, Let's just say they had a a rip-roaring good time. Maybe an orgy. Orgy has another connotation, which may or may not be correct, but uh, you get the idea. There's a lot of something going on which is not pleasing to yod heh And how do we know that? Well, because the next verse says this. Yahuwah spoke to Moshe, and he said, you get on down there. Because the people, your people, he actually uses that word, your people, the ones you brought up out of the land of Egypt, they have dealt corruptly, or they have corrupted themselves. And interestingly, this is the same word that's used as to the state of the people before the flood. They are in like a pre-flood condition. And we know what happened then, right? Pre-flood means they, they got flooded out. They have turned aside awful darn quickly out of the way which I have commanded them. And they have made themselves this um, Egel Maseka, which I commanded them not to do. And they've worshipped it, and they have sacrificed it. And they said, and he's quoting them, This is your God, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Got to wonder what Moshe is thinking as he's hearing all this, right? Yehud then said to Moshe, I've seen this people. Oh, yeah. And behold, they are a stiff-necked lot. And some interesting Hebrew words in here. One of them is um, uh, a roof, which has to do with the back or the nape of the neck. Back of the neck. So, yeah, this is where you see this reference to stiff-necked people. And uh, there's another implication in here, too. If you've ever heard the term in flagrante delecto, it's often used where somebody, uh, you know, man walks in on his wife, she's doing the dirty deed, caught in the act, in flagrante delecto. Well, that's basically the concept here. They've been caught in the act. And by the way, uh, don't think for a second that there isn't a real close connotation, connection, between words like idolatry and adultery. They, they sound similar in English because they really are. It's a spiritual adultery, physical idolatry. Um, the line gets very blurred, but certainly the implication is it's the same thing. So what does Yah say? He says, leave me alone. Leave me alone so that my wrath may wax hot against them. I'm going to consume them. And I'll make out of you a great nation. 
Now, I always, I always stop and, and ponder this one a little bit. I always think this is kind of fascinating because Rashi thought this was fascinating too. He has some, some interesting commentary on it. And basically he asks a question and he seems to suggest Moshe caught it as well. And that is, well, what if I don't leave you alone? Because you've just said, if I leave you alone, you're going to go out and whack all these people. My wrath will wax hot against them. So it seems that Moshe thinks, all right, so then in that case, I'm not going to leave you alone, so that maybe you won't do that. What does it say? Moshe besought Yahuwah, his El, and he said, uh, Adon. Why? And notice, this is not the usual word here uh, of uh, Madua. Um, or it's not, yeah, it's not Madua. Uh, it's why. It's to what end? To what end? Does your wrath wax hot against your own people? The ones that now he's he's turning the tide here. Notice he's he's not accepting that they're his people. These are the people that Yah brought. You brought them out, he says, out of the land of Egypt with a great power and with a mighty hand. Now I read this and I think, wow. Uh, this is what makes Moshe Moshe. This guy has some chutzpah, is the way it would be said. He is literally talking back to the creator of the universe. He's just been told, leave me alone, I'm going to kill all these folks. And Moshe doesn't. And then furthermore, he said, now you said they're my people. No, I'm, I'm turning around. These are your people. Remember, you brought them up out of the land of Mitzrayim with a mighty hand, great power. So, now he's going to offer an argument. And it goes like this. Why should the Egyptians not say, well, he brought them up out of there for an evil end, so that he could slay them in the mountains, consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath, says Moshe to his creator, and repent of this evil against your own people. And furthermore, he does what we see the men of Yah do many, many places and over and over again in Scripture. I think this is probably one of the most important elements that we get out of here when it comes to learning how to pray. And it's this, Zakar, remind him of his promises. We stand on his word, his promises. His promises are true. Remind him of those. That's what Moshe is doing here. Remember, he says, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants. And what did you do? You swore by your own self, and you said to them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land which I have spoken of will I give to your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. Now, this is also fascinating. i got to pause for just a second. I think it's great, and it's interesting that Moshe says this, but remember, uh, Moshe is a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Arguably, if Yah was to whack them, just like he was thinking about, and continue with Moshe, he's kept this promise. So I would say that on a logical standpoint, this is kind of a weak argument. Uh, but you got to give him credit for trying, right? What else has he got at this point? So it says, Yahuwah, um, he relented. I don't like the word repented, some renderings say. He had compassion. He, he pity. He eased his self. He rued the choice. He did not do the evil that he said he would do unto his people. Moshe talked him out of it, it sounds like. So he turned. Moshe did. He made teshuva. He went the other way. He went down from the mountain with these two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides. Written on one side and on the other. And they were literally the work of Elohim himself. The writing was the writing of Elohim graven upon the table. So the reason I think this is landed out for us is to say what an incredible shame. What a great loss for the world. These things were written with the very hand, the very finger of Yah himself. 
Moshe's got him in his hands. Well, we know what's going to happen if we read ahead or heard the story, right? Meanwhile, here's Joshua. He heard the noise of the people as they shouted. He says to Moshe as he's heading down, hey, there's a noise of war in the camp. And the response, it's not the voice of them that shout for mastery, nor is it the voice of them that cry for being overcome, but it's the noise of them singing that I think I'm hearing. Hearing singing. So it came to pass, as soon as he, Moshe, came nigh into the camp, he saw the gel, the calf, he saw the dancing, and he got some kind of P.O.'d. All right, says his anger waxed hot. I, I think maybe in the English that's a bit of an understatement. We would use somewhat tacky words to describe the, the level of his fierce wrath, but he was some kind of P.O.'d, right? We know what that word means. And he was so mad, he cast those tables out of his hand, smashed them on the ground, broke them right there beneath the mountain. So he took this calf in flagrante delecto, which they'd made, and he did the following. Now, this is interesting, too. There's a process laid out here. I'm going to suggest, hmm, it sounds a bit like something we're going to see later elsewhere. And that's always been fascinating to me. He took the calf. He burned it with fire. Burned it with fire and ground it to powder. Now, let's stop for a second. Because normally, if you're thinking about pure gold and you burn pure gold with fire, it doesn't turn to powder. What it does is it melts. Something about this calf is different. Something about the process that Moshe is using is different as well. So it's not exactly what we would normally think about because it doesn't work the way that would normally work. So he he burned it with fire, he ground it to powder, and he strewed that powder upon the water. And then what did he do? He made the Benai Israel drink of that water. Now I will sometimes talk about the cup and uh, the cup itself is a is a term that's used in some places, not in every place. But uh, if you think about it, how is he going to make them drink of the water, right? He probably put it in some kind of a vessel and had people come up and drink of it or something. But in any case, um, however it was done, it does, to my mind at least, sound a lot like the process outlined in Numbers chapter 5, the remedy for the jealous husband. And um, if you think about that, it really is appropriate. And this is the singular um, process in Scripture that requires a miracle from Yah in order to complete as it is written out for us. Because the idea there is, here's a man that doesn't know whether his wife has gone astray and committed adultery or not. Now, what we know, because they've been caught in the act, is that some of them did. Did all of them? And if so, which? Right? How are we going to find out? It's not explicitly stated, but there's an implication in here that I find fascinating. And the connection is certainly fascinating. Again, uh, this is the way I would connect the dots. You don't have to agree or do likewise, but um, sometimes when you see these parallels and we recognize words and processes that are real similar, you can't help but think, wow, this looks familiar. Okay, so Moshe said unto Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought this great sin upon them? Right? They must have really strapped you down and hit you with a hot poker or something, right? Aaron said, well, don't get too angry here. Let not the anger of my Lord wax hot. You know these folks. They are just plain set on evil. So they said to me, make us a god, which will go before us. Because this, this guy Moshe, this man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. And I said to them, well, okay, hey, anybody's got any gold? Let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire. Now, I'm going to do this the way I always do it, because I read this, I can't help it. It's uh, it, it does strain credulity a bit. On the other hand, maybe he's telling the God's honest truth. But regardless, here's what he says. 
And yes, I'll uh, I'll do a little bit of the Jethro thing. So he says, I cast into the fire, and shazam! Out comes this calf! It just kind of came out of the fire there. Is this an excuse, or is it really what happened? I mean, after all, this calf doesn't melt like normally. There's an engraving tool going on. We, we don't know for sure exactly what this molten maseka word means in this context. But in any case, um, we don't get any comment from Moshe. It doesn't say. It just says, that's what he said. And after that, it says, when Moshe saw that the people had broken loose... And this word, too, is, is kind of interesting. Uh, in the Hebrew, uh, the word appears twice. It's um, para, para. And in one case, it's uh, the feminine form. Para, uh, hu, ki, para. Broken loose. Uh, they were uncovered. Some renderings even suggest there's a nakedness involved. But uncovered, exposed. Aaron had exposed them, let them loose for a derision among their enemies. So what's really going on? Well, para, uh, para, for sure. Uh, some kind of nakedness, broken loose. Something is hanging out here. So Moshe stood in the gate of the camp, and he said the following. Who is ever on Yahuwah's side? Come on up here. Come on up to me. And we know already what happened. The Levites, all it says, of the sons of Levi, gathered themselves together unto him. Uh, I can't help but think this is not only fortuitous, but extremely important, because guess who the Kohenim are going to come from? Those are going to be set apart. Now, we've already seen some indications of this. Obviously, Moshe himself and Aaron are of the sons of Levi. There are some other uh, uh, cousins involved here. But um, he, he lays out the challenge, and they respond. Who's ever on Yahuwah's side, let him come on up here to me. So the sons of Levi, all of them, gathered themselves. He said to them, Thus says Yahuwah, here's your marching orders. Elohim of Israel, put your sword on your thigh. Guard your armor. Get ready. Go for it, guys. You get sorted up here. Go to and fro from gate to gate throughout this camp and slay every man his brother, every man his companion, every man his neighbor. Do a whole lot of slaying. And the Levites, by the way, the Levites, remember, the rest of the time, they don't go to battle. They are sure going to battle here against their brother, his companion, his neighbor. Now, it begs a question, and I've kind of laid out the question, right? How do they know? How do they know who needs dying? It doesn't explicitly say. I will contend that it kind of sort of does. But again, there is a little bit of dot connection involved. So I'm not going to say you have to agree, but it looks to me like the implication at least follows right from the text. So it says the sons of Levi did. They did according to the word of Moshe. And there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. 3,000 people were slain by the Levites as they went to and fro among the crowd. Now, there are um, multiple million men, women, and children here, 600,000, remember, that are um, of the battle age. So um, that's not a huge percentage, but it's sure a lot of bloodshed. Moshe said then, Consecrate yourselves today to Yahuwah, for every man has been against his son and against his brother, that he might bestow upon you a blessing this day. It's been a rough day, guys. It's time for a little bit of blessing. came to pass on the morning, the morrow, that Moshe said unto the people, You all have sinned one great big sin. Now, I'm going to go up to Yahuwah, and peradventure, I'll be able to make atonement for your sin. So he's just come down from the mountain. Arguably, he had to hurry. He's getting ready to go right back up again. 
Moshe returned unto you, and he said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin, and they have made themselves an Elohim, an, an L of gold. Now, therefore, if you will forgive that sin, and if not, just blot me, I pray you, out of the book which you have written. So Moshe is, is literally putting his life on the line for these people. If you'll forgive them, great. If not, you blot me, not them, blot me out of your book of life, the book which you have written. Yehuah then said to Moshe, Who has ever sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. So uh, Yehuah is making it clear here. The ones that have sinned, they're the ones that are going to get blotted out. Now you go, lead the people unto the place which I have spoken unto you. Behold, my malach... Uh, it's Malachi, my angel, my messenger, will go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. So we're seeing several things here. This is also kind of fascinating. Uh, they have been asking for an intermediary. Now they have one, this Malach, this messenger that will go before them. And furthermore, we're going to see he's going to make some commentary on that in a minute. Yahuwah smote the people, it says, because they made the calf. This is an interesting turn of phrase. Because they made the calf which Aaron made. They made the calf which Aaron made. So Aaron was their agent, if you will, in making this thing, and that doesn't sit well either. Then the um, the next chapter, chapter 33, says, Yehuah spoke to Moshe, and he said, Depart. Go up out of there, you uh, and the people that you brought up out of the land of Egypt, unto the land which I have sworn, unto Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, Unto your seed will I give it. So we've heard this before. Behold, here he says it, I will now send the Malach, that angel, that messenger before you, and I will drive out those people groups, the bad guys, Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. But, it says, for I will not go up in the midst of you, because you know what? You all really are a stiff-necked people. Lest I just plain get uh, you know out of shorts here, uh, lest I consume you along the way. You're better off if I don't go in the midst of you, because you just plain don't know what's... Well, maybe he's saying they, they do know what's going to happen. They're not going to like it. So the people heard these evil tidings. They mourned. And no man put on him his ornaments. I think I'll just stay a kind of a unadorned here. Yehuah then said to Moshe, You say unto the Benai Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If I go up in the midst of you for one moment, I'll just plain consume you. So now, therefore, put off those ornaments from you, that I may know what to do unto you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Guess we've had it with the jewelry for now. Uh, don't don't be wearing that jewelry. Doesn't sit sit well. So Moshe uh, used to make the tent and pitch it outside the camp, afar off, and he called it the Ohel of Meeting, the tent of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone that sought Yahuwah went out to that tent of meeting outside the camp. But it came to pass when Moshe went out into the tent that all the people rose up and they stood, every man at his tent door, and they looked after Moshe until he was gone into the Ohel, the tent. So it came to pass, when Moshe entered the tent, the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tent, and then Yahuwah spoke with Moshe. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud stand at the door of the tent, all the people rose up and they worshipped, every man at his tent door. And Yahuwah spoke unto Moshe face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. And he would return to the camp, but... Joshua, his number two man, his minister, son of Nun, young man, did not depart out of the Ohel, out of the tent. So Moshe said unto Yahuwah, Look, see, uh, you have said to me, Bring up this people. 
and you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. So Moshe, is uh, he sounds like he's fixing to ask something. So he prefaces it this way. Bring him up. Uh, and you, um, you haven't let me know who you're going to send with me, but you have said, I know you by name. And you've said, I found grace in your sight. So therefore, I pray you, if, in fact, I have found grace in your sight, show me now your ways, that I may know you. Right? The root word there, yada. I may know you. To the end, that I might find grace in your sight. So this is, this is interesting, right? If I found grace in your sight, let me know you, so that I might find grace in your sight. Sounds like what he's asking for is a deeper relationship. And consider that this nation is, in fact, your people. There's obviously a bit of restoration that's necessary here, too. And the response, Yah says, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. And then the response from Moshe, If your presence doesn't go with me, then don't bother, right? Carry us not up there. It needs to go. For wherein now shall it be known that I have found grace in your sight, I and your people. Not just Moshe, but your people. It's, if it's, uh, is it not good that you go with us so that we are distinguished? I and your people from all the people that are on the face of the earth? Uh, Moshe, again, he's pushing. Yehuda then said to Moshe, I'll do this thing also that you've spoken. Because you have. You have indeed found grace in my sight. And I know you by name. Well, says Moshe, show me, I pray, your glory. All right, he says. I will make all of my goodness pass before you. Now, this this is obviously a very, very famous, right? He's going to hide Moshe in the cleft of the rock. We've heard the songs. We've, we have the picture in our heads. This is quite a dramatic scene. But we get here because Moshe is pushing. He's pressing. He is, again, showing this level of chutzpah and saying, I, I desire this relationship. And this, at least, I think, as, as much as anything, we're, we're continuing to see this character of Moses laid out, what it is that makes him unique, how it was that he was able to have this relationship. Show me, I pray, your glory. Well, he says, I'll make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim the name of Yahuwah before you. Not the Lord. I hate it when they do that, especially when it's important. He's not going to proclaim the name Hashem, Hashem. No, he says, I'm going to proclaim my name, yod heh vav before you. And I guarantee you, he pronounced it correctly, regardless of whether the rabbis want us to know how to do it or not. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This is kind of the essence of what it means to be the sovereign, folks. I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I'll be merciful to whom I'll be merciful. And he said, though, here's one caveat, right? You cannot see my face, for no man shall see my face and live. So, Yahuwah said, Behold, there is a place by me. You shall stand upon the rock. Here's how we'll do it. It'll come to pass that when my glory passes by, while it's there, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand, until I have passed by. And then I'll take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Wow. Then Yahuwah says to Moshe, All right, get yourself two more tablets of stone. Hew them out like the first ones. And I will write upon the tablets the words that were on those first tablets, the ones you broke. And be ready in the morning. 
come up in uh, the morning unto Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on the top of Har Sinai, on the top of the mount. And don't let any man come up with you, nor let any man be seen throughout the mountain, nor let the herds or the flocks feed before that mountain. So, Moshe did as commanded. He hewed two tablets of stone, just like the first ones, and he rose up early in the morning. He went up to Mount Sinai, as Yahuwah commanded him, and he took in his hand those two new tablets of stone. So Yahuwah descended in the cloud. He stood with him there, and he proclaimed the name Yahuwah. And Yahuwah passed by before him, and he said the following. Yahuwah, Yahuwah, Elohim, Actually, it's in this case, it's L. Merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. Now, by the way, as I go through this, you'll hear this term sometimes in uh, some of the literature, the 13 attributes of mercy. Here we go. Keeping mercy unto the thousandth generation, forgiving toralessness, iniquity, and transgression, and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, and upon the children's children, unto the third and fourth generation. Now, this is always interesting. So um, people don't die for their father's sins, but the iniquity, the toralessness of the father, in fact, does get passed down to the third and the fourth generation. And I've seen uh, some commentaries and some uh, uh, some interesting things. There are some medical conditions that, uh, fascinatingly, will persist for three to four generations, passed from father to offspring. And alcoholism seems to have a likewise uh, a three-generation or so characteristic of being prone to alcoholism. If your dad or great-granddaddy was an alcoholic, now there's a risk. So it's fascinating that so much about what Scripture tells us here, we see literally physically still in, in humankind. So Moshe made haste, he bowed his head toward the earth, and he worshipped. And he said, if now I have found grace in your sight, O Yahuwah, let Yahuwah, I pray thee, go in the midst of us. Because you know what? You're right. We are a stiff-necked people. Let him go in the midst and pardon our toralessness, our iniquity, and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And the response, he, yod vav said, Behold, I make a covenant, a Brit. So here is another covenant that Yah is confirming. Before all the people I will do marvels, such as have not been wrought in all the earth, nor in any nation, and all the people among which you are shall see the work of Yahuwah that I am about to do with you. And it's going to be something else. It is tremendous. They'll see that. Observe you that which I am commanding you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you. This is a an action in progress. The Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Take heed to yourself, lest you do something, lest you cut a covenant. And literally the word here is um, karat, to cut a Brit. He's making a covenant, don't you do one with the inhabitants of the land, the, the land into your going, lest they be a snare in the midst of you. So this is a commandment. We're going to see, by the way, that uh, Joshua failed on this score, and it was, in fact, exactly the kind of snare that uh, he was warned about, that Moshe is warned about right here. But here's what you'll do instead. You shall break down their altars. By the way, this commandment, this appears over and over and over again in Scripture. And um, 
uh, let's just say when it comes to uh, idolatry, this hasn't been done. What the Roman church did was take these altars, rather than dashing them in pieces, they Christianized them, brought them in and said, hey, come on, bring your pagan crap with you. We'll just adulterate the, the religion here and uh, make a treaty. No. All of this was hideously wrong. And here we're seeing the root and the prohibition against doing what was done. Because what they were supposed to do instead, break down their pillars, uh, their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, I guess either way they're destroyed, right? And cut down their ashram, their, their worship poles, their, their fancy trees, their, uh, their phalluses uh, representations. For you shall bow down to no other L. For Yahuwah, whose name is Jelish, Kana, is in fact El Kana. Another one of the names of El. Uh, he is El Kana. Lest you do what is forbidden here. Cut a treaty, a Brit, a covenant, with the inhabitants of the land. And they would then go astray after those gods and sacrifice unto their gods. And they call you and eat of, and you would eat of their sacrifice. And you take of their daughters and your sons and their daughters go astray after their gods and make their sons go astray after their gods, right? The whole process that we've seen and in fact did see and are seeing. Don't do any of that. Oh yeah, and it says this in verse 17. You shall make for yourself no, um, L, that are Maseka, like that golden calf. Molten gods. But remember, uh, it's not really a molten god for, for all the reasons we've talked about. But whatever it is, don't make anything even remotely like it. The Feast of Unleavened Bread you shall keep. Hey, we're coming up on that. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you, at the time appointed in the month Abib. Because in the mouth of Abib, that's when you came up out of Mitraim, Egypt. All that open the womb, he continues, is mine, firstborn. And of all the cattle, you shall sanctify, set apart the males, the firstlings of ox and sheep, the firstling of an ass, you'll redeem with a lamb. And if you won't redeem it, well, then you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons, you shall redeem, and no one shall appear before me empty. Or sometimes you might translate that as empty-handed. Six days you shall work. Oh, this was right there in the middle of that atbash. Six days you shall work. And on the seventh day you rest. Plowing time and then harvest. I don't care. You still rest. Right? It's a busy time. Those of us that have uh, plowed and harvested know this is a really busy time, but you keep the Sabbath. Six days you work. Seventh day you rest. Period. And you shall observe the Feast of Weeks. Even the first fruits of the wheat harvest, the feast of end gathering at the turn of the year. In other words, three feasts, these, these feasts of ascension as they're sometimes called, these three times in the year, all of your males will appear before Yahuwah, Elohim, the El of Israel. Because you know what? I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders, nor shall any man covet your land. When you go up to appear before Yahuwah, your God, those three times in the year. Now this too is always kind of fascinating. Think about it. You're worried, right? You're going to leave all the males, take off and leave your farms and your, your ranches and all your, your herds and your wives and your children all unattended. You don't think somebody's going to say, oh, look, time to move in and uh, you know do some nasty stuff here. Don't worry about it, he says. I will make sure no man will covet your stuff when you go up to appear before Yehoiarel three times in the year. Nor shall you offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread. Nor shall the sacrifice of the feast of Passover be left unto the morning. 
You don't leave any leftovers. The choices first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of Yahuwah Yerel. You shall not seethe a kid in its mother's milk. Then Yahuwah said to Moshe, you write these words down. Because after the tenor of these words, I have made this Brit, I have cut the covenant, literally, with you and with Israel. So, again it says, Moshe was there with Yahuwah for 40 days and 40 nights. Long time, 40 days, 40 nights. He didn't eat bread, nor did he drink water. And he wrote upon the tablets the words of the Brit, the covenant, the uh, Ten Ha Debarim. So it came to pass when Moshe came down from the mountain, Mount Sinai, with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, when he came down from the mount, Moshe didn't know that at this point the skin of his face was sending forth beams while he talked with him. Now this is another one of those interesting words, shone, or it glowed, or it sent forth beams. Uh, some have said, hey, maybe his face was lazing like a laser. But what we do know is that the first use of this word here that we see in Scripture that's rendered as shown, and it's um, um, Quran, whatever it was, it upset some folks. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moshe, behold, the skin of his, the skin of his face sent forth these beams, uh, this Quran, and they were afraid. They didn't want to come near him. So Moshe said to him, he called out, Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned unto him. They made teshuva. Moshe spoke with him. And afterwards, all of the Benai Israel came nigh, and he gave them in commandment all the who had spoken uh, with him there in Mount Sinai. So, when Moshe had done speaking with him, he ended up putting a veil over his face. And I guess the idea is he puts the veil over his face so that they're not scared of him. I've got some goats that kind of behave that way around certain uh, dogs and so forth. Uh, anyway, they're, they're upset, puts a veil on, and I guess that's okay. So, when Moshe then went in before Yahuwah that he might speak with him, he took off the veil until he came out. And when he came out, he spoke to the Benai Israel that which he was commanded. But when the children of Israel saw the face of Moshe, that the skin of his face sent forth beams, Moshe then put the veil back upon his face until he went to speak with him again. So he is uh, he's doing what he needs to do to keep his face uh, covered so that the uh, the beams that shine from him uh, don't scare folks, it sounds like. Uh, maybe maybe that's just a another reading. But regardless, uh, something is happening with Moshe here after his second time up the mountain that is certainly unique. So come out of her, oh my people, for the time has come to judge Babylon. So come out of her. Hey folks, good morning, Boker Tov. Shabbat Shalom. Welcome back. Let's talk about probably one of the, uh, well, the major, that's one good way to put it, Torah portions in in all of Scripture. It uh, certainly is one of the most famous. It's also the tragic event. A friend of mine likes to call it the unfortunate incident of the golden calf. Uh, certainly there is a lot of, uh, of meat in here. And uh, this one has a lot that uh, I guess you could say hinges on it. And uh, so what I want to do is the following. Um, I'll start off this way with just a quick little note that may set the stage. I got an email this week from somebody saying, Hey, what does Torah observant mean to you? 
And you know, I've been asked that question a lot of times over the years. Uh, usually I will respond something to the effect of it has to do with understanding Torah as written. And um, I often will point out that what Torah is is not law, right? Uh, law is um, uh, a subset of Torah. But Torah is bigger than law. It means statutes, judgments, and um, uh commandments and so forth, the, the words we have in Hebrew there too, but it also means a lot more. It means instruction. And it includes things like parables and examples for us. So Torah is is really a bigger deal. And uh, oftentimes, and I'll point out Matthew five seventeen through 19, where Yeshua in his first public address, as everybody who's listened here probably even once or twice knows, uh, where he said he wasn't going to change nothing, not the tiniest part, not one yoda or tittle from his own instruction. After all, he was the Torah made flesh. Uh, so long as heaven and earth still exist, and until everything, and uh, I think that means everything, because that's what he said, is fulfilled. So that's kind of the positive way of putting it, but it really still doesn't explain, well, so what does Torah observant mean? And the answer is, there is a whole lot of instruction in there, and uh, what I try to do is to say that... uh, those of us who want to be obedient to the Master, to the Creator, to uh, our salvation, to all the things He's done for us, we want to try to obey Him, right? He says it this way, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I say? Okay, but on the other hand, it occurs to me as I was looking through this Parsha this week, and by the way, it runs from Exodus chapter 30, essentially through 34, you could say that maybe this is the Parsha to answer that question from the opposite perspective, In other words, what Torah obedience is not. And we get a good example of that in here with the incident, uh, you know, the unfortunate incident with the golden calf, uh, the Egel uh, Maseka. And um, what's always fascinated me is I would look at this, and I'm going to talk about it a bit today, and I will say that um, mainstream, and I'll call it this again, whore church Christianity is about a good, uh, as good of an example of what it means to worship the golden calf as you're going to find. <gasps> oh, no! Okay, uh, nobody could possibly uh, uh, could possibly make that case, right? Well, I would suggest that once you see it, and once you realize how much pagan idolatry is wrapped up in Christianity, and how so much of what is now taught on Sun God Day is antithetical to His Word, that it's impossible to unsee it. So I have a one-word, one-sentence summary here in a second, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait just a second on that. I want to do this first, though, uh, up front. So let me do it this way for reasons that will become clear as we go through this. Um, maybe you've seen the little tags, right? Uh, so here comes the alert. Sarcasm on. All right. This Parsha has absolutely nothing, no, not at all, nothing to do with the whore church. Oh, no. Bail forbid that it should have anything to do with the whore church and its own little uh, sacred cows. Isn't it funny how even the term sacred cow has come into the general lexicon, and yet most people don't realize that uh, that's what's doing. I, I guess you could say the sacred cows coming up on the season of the sacred bunnies and the sacred eggs and the sacred dying of eggs to represent the children of uh, you know, the sacrifice to the great god Ishtar, Easter, Astarte, on Sun God Day, right after the sunrise service. Ooh, oh, well, that hits pretty close to home. Well, the truth is, again, there is a whole lot of pagan idolatry in Christianity. And by the way, if you really want to great summary there. Most of you have heard me talk about this many times, uh, if you've been around uh, with us for a while anyway. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 8 and 9. You'll see all of the abominations. Hey, look over here, Ezekiel. Son of man, turn over there. Uh, Look through that hole in the wall. You'll see even greater abominations. What's he describing? 
Lent, the Easter ham, the sunrise services, so many things that once again, once you see them, you can't unsee them. And then, of course, the moral of the story is really shocking, and that is he sends the uh, angel with the inkhorn. And he says, you mark all the men that are sighing and crying, all those that are disgusted, mad as hell about the abominations that are going on here. And then, after they're marked, you send these other four folks out with their destroying weapon, the other uh, Malachim, and they're to kill every man, woman, and child, every single one of them who does not have my mark. And where begin? Yeah, begin at my sanctuary. I guess nowadays we could say begin at the whore church, or at least one of the places where this stuff is going on. All right, well, so there's at least kind of a a quick summary of uh, what it means to say this teaches the negative part of that. But having that all on the table, you know, and the sarcasm is off now, I'm going to see if I can't make a, a one-sentence summary of uh, the Torah portion and the story of the golden calf and what happens afterwards with Moshe. As a matter of fact, we're going to see a process of, of redemption and reconciliation and trying to make right that which is wrong. It's going to go on for a long time after this. Maybe you could argue it's still going on. Anyway, it goes like this. Worship him as he specifies. It really is that simple. Worship him the way he says to. Don't worship him with bunnies and eggs and sun god day, sunrise services and Ishtar hams. And don't worship him with golden calves and all these other things. All these pagan practices that the whore church has absorbed into and said, we're going to Christianize all of this crap that he hates. And we're going to say it's okay because it's not. So what does Torah obedience mean to you? Well, among other things, it means worship him the way he says he wants to be worshipped. Don't tell him, hey, you know my heart. (laughs) You know that I just love this golden calf, and I really like it better than what you say. I like it better than your feast, your Moedim. I like it better than your Passover. I like it better than your uh, 50-day celebration. Uh, I like it better than your Sukkot. Uh, uh, No, folks. Worship him as he specifies. So, yeah, there is a uh, there is a lot about this Parsha that kind of gives us a big clue on that score. And admittedly, yeah, if, if you haven't gotten the idea already, um, it is a bit on the negative side, but it is certainly important. And perhaps because of what we're seeing now today, it's uh, even all the more important. Now, with that on the table, what I want to do is talk about another couple of elements of worship him as, as he specifies. Because as it turns out, right up front in this portion, before we get to the part about the uh, Egel Maseka and the golden calf, and that is fascinating, and I'll at least touch on it again, even though we talked about it in some detail last night. We have um, this, and it gets glossed over. People don't pay attention to it. As you know, I like it, and um, I um, uh, oh, I give credit to um, uh, Rabbi David... Um, oh, heavens, now I've forgotten... Foreman, Rabbi David Foreman, thank you, is um, is the one that I first saw teach this, so I give him credit, uh, although the term has been around for a lot longer, but it's the atbash, the chiasm is the English rendering for it. This is the nested parentheses, the nested brackets, and uh, as I was putting my notes together this morning, uh, and I, I believe that uh, occasionally the creator does this, I'm very thankful for it, uh, he gave me an example that I had never thought of before. But it kind of does. It leaps off the page at you. And that's the expression. It leaps off the page. Because that's exactly how I put it last night. This leaps off the page when you see the brackets here. And it helps. What I did is go through my uh, teaching Bible. And I have the phrases highlighted with different colors of um, highlighting um, markers. So, for example, where it says, Speak unto the children of Israel. Tell them this. Verily, you shall keep my Sabbaths. 
This is a sign, an oath between you and me throughout your generations and, and so forth. So if you mark those A, B, and C, you can see that there is a set of open brackets or open parentheses and then close brackets and close parentheses. And I explain that and I say, hey, you know, what this really is, it's kind of like a flashing red sign. It should leap right off the page at us and see it. And then you know that, hey, in the middle, the thing that is the flashing red sign is what is being set off. That's what's so important. What is it that's so important? Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest. Holy unto yod heh vav his real name, not the Lord, his real name, Yahuwah. Whoever does any work on that day, the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Well, that's the close bracket, that part about uh, being put to death. It, it also is the last thing that is the open bracket. Well, what is it that was uh, that, that struck me about this? Because I've used this phrase before. It's kind of like something that leaps off the page at you. And then I got to thinking, okay, now I'll try to do this without waxing too nerdy. But I guess on the nerdy scale, this is probably less nerdy than some stuff that I might tend to uh, to talk about. Uh, but um, years ago, when I was working at IBM, and I was involved with some people that were way back then doing various things associated with text, because we made printers in Boulder. And, of course, one of the things you want to do with printers is print stuff, right? How do you make text leap off the page? Well, if you have a color printer, you can put it in bright colors. If it's on a display screen, you can make it flash and underline it, and it can be different colors. And I mean, it's really cool, all the things you can do. Well, anyway, I was involved with some people, not directly, but at least some of my friends, that were on what was called the committee. Uh, back in those days, it was called GML. Later, you've heard it. You may have heard it called HTML. And um, if you've ever looked at a uh, an ebook, if you've ever looked at a screen, if you've ever designed a web page, you see this all the time. The term is tags, right? Everybody know what a tag is? A tag is something you do in a in a file in a computer program, but when it's displayed on either a um, a color printer or on a TV screen. Um, what, what was happening back at IBM in those days and these international committees was let's create this generalized markup language, some way of having tags of telling what this text is supposed to be and do that is uh, independent of whether you print it on a printer or display it on a computer screen or send it over an email or whatever it might be, but we can do with it what we want. Well, you know what? That's exactly what's happening here with this chiasm, with this atbash. This is the creator of the universe putting an HTML tag in his Bible, his text, his Torah. And it says, this is important. I want this to be great, big, flashing, 25-point uh, font letters in red on a black background, and I want it underlined and highlighted. And this is probably the most glaring Big example in the book. And if you remember how tag works, and I already gave you an example up front here, right? Sarcasm on, sarcasm off. So if you look at the tags, you'll see this this tag. Sometimes it has brackets around it, and it says, you know, font on, font off, or caps on, caps off, or bright flashing red on. At the end of the, the text, there's a closed bracket that says bright flashing red off. And if you've ever tried to uh, to format a document, now we have tools now that do this all automatically, put in the Atbosh for us. But um, prior to this, you had to make sure you got the open tag and the closed tag, or it would do all kinds of funny things, right? We've most of us seen that. Well, anyway, I think if you've not thought about the uh, the importance of the things that the creator of the universe puts in his text and how he did it. And by the way, uh, long before I was talking to people that were writing HTML or GML tags and trying to figure out how to do this, <laughs> turns out the creator had already been doing it. Isn't that clever? In his book, um, millennia earlier. 
And ironically, I guess if you had, um, if you would put the HTML tags in here where this section is in chapter 31, you would see you could make this bright flashing red text. And it would say, da, 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 six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of solemn rest. Holy unto Yahuwah. Don't do any work on it. Now, why is that important? Why did I start off with this idea of, uh, hey, um, what does Torah obedience mean to you? What does this idea of um, Torah observance mean? Answer, well, worship him the way he says to. Do the things that he says are important. And furthermore, uh, do you think if he puts bright, flashing red text, sets it off, and tells us not once, not twice, uh, honestly, I, I would be hard-pressed to suggest it's less than dozens of times in Scripture that his seventh day is his Sabbath. He doesn't ever say the Jewish Sabbath. He says, my Sabbath, mine, if you let me keep my commandments. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I say? Why do you call me uh, a follower of the Most High, a servant of Jesus, and not do what I say to do? Well, because the whore church told me that they're changing the day. Oh, well, that explains it. Yeah, sorry, who am I, the creator of the universe, to say anything bad about the whore church? By the way, that's why I kicked them out, and they're still in exile. Are we seeing the pattern here? Notice what was the whole point of the story that follows, right? The people basically saying, we don't like this uh, yod Hey vav Hey, we don't like doing the things he says. Uh, we have, we want our own gods. We want bitter gods. Let's make ourselves this molten golden calf. Yeah, here's your gods, O Israel. Folks, this is the oldest pattern. <laughs> the oldest pattern in at least this part of the book. I guess it goes back to the big lies. You can be like God. You will not die. You can rewrite his rules. So what does Torah observance mean? It means he's the boss. It means he's the one true creator. It means he wrote the rules. It means if we're to serve him, obey him, walk in obedience to him, accept him as our, our master, our, our savior, well, what's our um, reasonable service? Do what he says. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do that? Worship him as he specifies. And he's even got these tags in there to make it clear. And uh, so, um, to the question, what does Torah observant mean to you? It starts with some of the easy, simple stuff. Do what he says to do. Don't do what he says not to do. And when it comes to keep my Sabbaths, not only does he mean the seventh day weekly Sabbath, he means his Moedim, his set-apart times, the days that he says are important. Right? we got one coming up here, not, not, not long. Passover, Pesach. Uh, there are others. There are three in the spring, three in the fall. Uh, three of those are called the uh, the times when the people, of, the men of Israel, were supposed to get together. They were the feast of ascension, or the the uh, the moedim of getting together, going back to Jerusalem. Do those things again. That part's not hard. And it never got changed. And all of that is part and parcel of why I think it's so um, vital to go through and, and see what the lesson is here. Because we tend to gloss over it. And, and I can remember having heard this. Oh, you know, that was what that old, those old Jews did in Old Testament times. They made themselves a golden cask. How, how stupid is that? Hardy, hardy, hardy. See here, take this little man on a stick and let's make ourselves a little shrine, light some candles and worship at that. That's different. It is? Really? Make a God who shall go before us. As for this man Moses, we don't know what's happened with him. What does Aaron say? Hey, this is your God, O Israel. Tomorrow we'll just have a feast and we'll just say that it's to Yahuwah. 
He even got it right. The whole church has taken the word out. They say it's a feast of the Lord. Which Lord? Hey, we got a million of them. Baal here, Molech there, Ishtar over here, Easter over there. Same God, same Lucifer, same Hasatan, same alternative, same... Doesn't matter. Right? We'll just call it to the God of the Bible. Even if it's not. Even if we know damned well, and I chose that word explicitly, that it's not. Hmm. I've always thought it was funny that uh, Aaron seems to get away with it here. Obviously, I think there was some uh, there was some comeuppance associated with this, with this. But I guess the Creator of the universe has shown that He can be forgiving. He can be pretty forgiving. Uh, Aaron Aaron blew it several times in this. So let me do this. Let's let's go back and um, having kind of laid all of that out and uh, got the sarcasm out of the way and the tags. I want to point out a couple of things. As we go through the the story now, as I was as I was turning to this, I just saw one other thing that uh, I think he's he's suggesting to me. Yeah, this is related. We may not think so. It talks about this this most holy stuff that's going to be made: the anointing oil and the incense. And the common thread is: don't make anything like it. This is for me. This is set apart. It is unique. It's holy. It's to be holy unto you. Anybody that compounds anything like this so they can smell it or put it on their girlfriend, no, that one is to be cut off from his people. So here, too, is a commandment from the Most High that leads up to all of this. What's the common theme? Well, sure, this is how I want to be worshipped. And by the way, I don't want you taking my stuff and using it for anything else. Oh, yeah, and I don't particularly like you making fake gods and saying, I'm supposed to like them because you made them and you call them by my name. Wouldn't that be kind of like taking his name in vain? There is, uh, I, you know, once you see it, it's it's hard to unsee it again. It's uh, it's not difficult to recognize that he hasn't been at all ambiguous about what he likes and what he detests, what he hates. As a matter of fact, after the story here, he says, you know, I'm just I'm just disgusted enough. I'm not gonna I'm gonna send my messenger with you all from here on because if I was afraid, uh, if I was in, in there amongst you, I might just whack you all. I'm still pissed. Hmm. Well, maybe the whole church has an uh, has an easier uh, way here because they've been kicked out in exile for so long. I think probably uh, his angels got nothing to do with the whole church. Ooh, gee, Mark, you're you're being kind of hard on the whole church. Well, not nearly as hard as he was, has been, and is. And um, if you read Ezekiel eight and nine, uh, I can't help but think not really as hard as he may very well be because of the times we're heading into. We're going to see all of these kind of things. And so this portion is vitally important for us to understand and go through. All right, I was leading up to um, the actual uh, incident with the golden calf itself. Oh, I do think this is kind of funny. Not funny, haha, but funny, interesting. Right before we get the Atbash, my Sabbaths keep them. Flashing red lights, HTML tags, set apart, this is vital. Sixth day shall work be done. Seventh day is the Sabbath. Nope, not Sun God Day. Not the next day. Not in honor of Constantine or, or Mithras or any of those other fake gods. My day, the day that I rested and told you to keep what? Forever, throughout your generations and all your dwelling places. Well, right before that, chapter 31 says, i got these two folks I'm going to tell you about. We're going to see their names and what they do is going to be vital throughout the next few portions here. Uh, one of them, Betzalel, son of Uri. I've got... Uh, Put the Ruach Elohim, the spirit of Yah, into him. Okay, and wisdom and understanding and knowledge, all manner of workmanship. This is the guy who's going to make all kinds of stuff. Stuff that uh, without my spirit, he'd never be able to do. Also, Aholiav, 
the uh, tent of the father is his name. That's the meaning of it. Uh, he's a man of the tribe of Dan. And uh, they're going to do all of these things to make the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, uh, all the furniture, the vessels, the menorah, you name it, uh, the things associated with the burnt offerings and, and the lavers and, and so forth. And they will do all that I have commanded you. They will be the ones that will implement it. They'll do it. So here we go. Chapter 32. Let's, let's take a look at this with all of this stuff on the table and see if a couple things just don't kind of leap out at us. And I'm going to do something in the process of the first example here that I don't often do, but we are today. And that is to leap ahead to the next Torah portion, at least just for a second, because I think it's important. And here, by the way, is another one of those HTML tags. Here's a, uh, a little tag that, that ought to, once you see it, leap off the page at you. So, people saw that Moses hadn't come back down when they thought he should have been there. So it says the following. They gathered themselves together. They went to Aaron. And they said what we've already read, right? Uh, make some gods. And Rashi points out the plural is used here. Make gods, not just one of them. We, we want several. They wanted lots of gods, he says. Anyway, do that. But before they do that, here's this word that is used here. They, um, they, yichal. Oh, yeah, I know. Vayikhel. Uh, we, we have a Torah portion that has that name. Uh, not here, but Vayikhel. Um, they gathered themselves together. Turns out, this is the very first time that that word is used in the book. First time it's used. They gathered themselves together. Now, this word is, appears, uh, appears a lot of places in the Torah, and it has to do with, um, you'll see the word kahal, the assembly. What's an assembly? It's a gathering together. Uh, the uh, I like the term uh, kahal better than I do church, which kind of has the meaning of circus in the Greek language. Um, although it certainly has been a circus, and that's part of the reason I don't care for the term being used to uh, apply to his people. His people gathered them. But wait a minute. Gee, Mark, there's a problem here, right? Do you notice? Yeah, the, the first time we see this word used in the scripture, that they gathered themselves together, uh, you could say it's not a very good thing, right? They're fixing to gather themselves together to do something really gnarly, nasty, and evil. And Aaron may even have felt con- coerced in the process. They gathered themselves together. Hey, you, dude, get over here. Make some gods for us. Well, what happened to that Moshe, dude? Well, Aaron seems to have caved right in. But the problem is, this gathering together, again, first use in Scripture. So oftentimes you'll hear people say, and I'm a big proponent of this, the first use tells us a lot about the meaning of the word. Gathered themselves together. They didn't gather themselves together to worship the right God. They gathered themselves together, well, kind of like the whole church, to worship the wrong God the wrong way on the wrong day. Hmm. It occurs to me, although there's a different terminology, we have heard, we've already talked about it in the Torah, uh, there is a commandment that says, don't do this. Right? Uh, Don't follow after a crowd to do evil. Don't care how many people say that, let's go out and steal from somebody, let's all get together and kill that dude, let's go take his stuff, let's go rape his wife. No, don't follow after a mob to do evil. It's pretty clear. It's a definite, no doubt about it, uh, Torah commandment. And what is fascinating is the first use that we see is precisely in line with that. What does Aaron do? He follows after the mob to do evil. Matter of fact, he lets the mob coercing him, coerce him into doing evil. Makes him God. Yeah, oh, get yourself some golden rings. Oh, wives, daughters, get all those earrings. Bring them to me. He received it at their hand. He fashioned it with a graving tool, and he mo- he made that Egel Maseka right there. 
And then later on, right, ask what was happening. He says, I don't know, man. I just threw all the gold in there. Shazam, out comes this golden calf. And then he says this, famously, This is your God, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he made an altar. And he made a proclamation. Tomorrow, we'll just pretend this is a feast to yod Hey vav Hey. I bet that didn't set real well with the Lord either. We'll pretend it's a feast to him, even though I think Aaron knew it wasn't. If he didn't, he's, um, well, he's not as smart of a guy as I think Scripture makes him out to be. So they got up, they rose up in the morning, they offered their burnt offerings, peace offerings, they sat down to eat and drink, and they made merry. They, uh, they that, that root word for laughter there. Ha, 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 we're having a jolly good time. Little orgy here, little, ooh, ooh. Not, you know, exactly what they're doing, it's not clear, but one thing's for sure, it sure P.O.'d Moshe, and uh, by the way, the creator of the universe, he wasn't happy about it either. Immediately, Yahuwah speaks to Moshe up on the mountain. He says, get on down there. Your people, those, the ones you, note, brought up out of Egypt, they have dealt corruptly. They have corrupted themselves. And I made this point. It's the same word that is used before Yah decided to sand them all down. It's the same word as to what had happened to mankind before the flood. He is repeating, hmm, this looks really familiar. They've turned aside quickly from out of the way which I have commanded them. They're worshiping me in a way I have told them not to do. What's going to happen? Well, he was fixing to whack them all. And that's part of the story how Moshe, um, at least so we're told, talked him out of it and so forth. But I hope we're seeing the pattern here. Again, this is the thing I wanted to emphasize. The um, the idea that they gathered together, uh, they, they went and became a mob... And they went to coerce Aaron, or at least they certainly got Aaron to go along with them, to do this thing which was arguably abomination. He uses the word explicitly, toiba, elsewhere, to describe things that should not have been done, but they're doing anyway. The whoring, the idolatry, the adultery. It's why the, uh, the northern kingdom, Israel, was later sent into exile and is still in exile. Don't follow after a mob to do evil. Well, that was exactly what happened. First use of this word, the root word there, kahal, is a mob. It literally it's a mob scene, and it is one of the biggest examples of something forbidden in the whole book. Now, here's what's fascinating. I mentioned Vayakel, that same word. Matter of fact, even in the same form, if you will. The very next Torah portion, the one we're going to talk about next week, begins at chapter 35, verse 1, and it says, Vayakel Moshe. What? And Moses, this time, assembled, he got them all together, all of the congregation, kol edat, of the Benai Israel. Got them all together. Same root word. Now, can you see the difference? I think it's fascinating, and I think it really helps us to see how the same root word can be used for good or for evil. Kind of depends on why these people are gathered together, right? Maybe it's who does the gathering. Who convinced them, or what, I guess you might say, convinced them to go out and say, hey, let's just piss the God of the Bible off big time and uh, make a, um, a molten, uh, an Egel Maseka to a whole different God, and then we'll say it's for him. Ha, ha, ha. Think he'll fall for it? Probably not. But now we see, first verse of the next Torah portion, the same word, second use in the book, and Moshe this time, he, Vayakel, assembled all of the Kol Adat of the children of Israel. And he said, hey, here are the words which Yahuwah has commanded, that you should do them. Here are the words from the real God. Now, wait a second. 
Let me ask it this way. Here's here's a uh, an exercise for the listener. What do you think the first words out of Moshe's mouth are after that? And I actually wasn't going to go here, but I got to because it leaped off the page at me, almost like it was in a uh, a tag, an HTML font uh, with bright flashing letters. Here are the words which you who has commanded that you should do them. You ready? You know what it's going to say. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day, there, that's to you a set apart a holy day, a Sabbath of solemn rest unto the real one. yod Hey vav Hey Yahuwah. Whoever does any work therein shall be put to death. First thing. It's literally the very, almost word for word, same thing that was put there in the middle of that big flashing red set apart tag, the Atbash, in the last Parsha. It's almost like, hey, you got into trouble. Now, let me ask this question. What is it that the whore church says? Notice I'm using that term explicitly now. Well, we got this new God. We like him better. Mithras, Sun God Day. Matter of fact, we've even named it in honor of the Sun God. Forget that seventh day thing. Forget the death penalty for doing any work. No, no, hell. Uh, we, we got a better day. And by the way, and I, I, um, I won't say I love this, it has always struck me as a bit of truth, at least. Um, there was a Catholic bishop, uh, biggest, uh, uh, cardinal actually, uh, in the United States, uh, Cardinal Gibbons, uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, and uh, highest ranking uh, uh, literal uh, uh, member of the clergy in the United States, um, reported directly to Rome and so forth. Anyway, and he, he explained it. You can read his text. I've, I've got it somewhere. And he said, says, look, this is where you, uh, you protesting Catholics don't realize you're still following Catholic dogma. Because we changed the Sabbath day. And, and it, Gibbons comes right out and says it. No, there's nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere. Don't kid yourself. People try to tell you that it's in there. It's not. Nowhere he changed it from the seventh day commanded by yod heh vav to Sun God Day. We did that. We did it under our own authority. Ha, ha, ha. And you, by having bought into it, by having accepted our authority to change it, ha, 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 you're Catholics, whether you know it or not. You're still right there with the whore church on page one. What's first thing out of Moses' mouth after he assembled the children of Israel for good, in contrast to what just happened in the last Parsha? Six days shall work be done, seventh day. No, not the first day of the week, not changed as a result of some popish and encyclical years before. On the seventh day, there is that is to you to be set apart to yod heh vav a Sabbath of solemn rest unto Yahuwah, the one whose name they don't even like to tell. Whoever does any work therein shall be put to death. I think... Given the context of what we're talking about, you could say all of this is serious stuff. So what does Torah observant, what does Torah obedient mean to you? It means that I understand that when he says something, when he puts it in great big flashing letters, when he sets it off with an atbash, when he repeats it over and over and over again, when he points out that people were gathered together for evil and to follow a mob to do this nasty stuff, and we've already been commanded not to do that, and then when Moshe assembles the congregation together, and now this time says, here's what Yahuwah has commanded, and the first words out of his mouth, are exactly the same thing that's already been repeated a bunch of times, including in the Ten Commandments. And, by the way, some of the whore church even says that hasn't all been done away with, just most of it. Do you think just maybe it's serious? What does Torah observant mean to you? It means I can read what he wrote as written. It means when he says to do it, I'm going to think, hmm, maybe I should do that. 
Maybe it's important. Maybe, in fact, we should take the bigger, broader picture here and say, "Mm, we should just plain worship him as he specifies. So those of you that have have been with me for a while know that uh, I will always point out certain words that appear in Scripture. Words like, throughout your generations. Olam, right? Forever. This commandment is a commandment forever. Do it throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. Many things he says that about and makes the point, um, arguably none more emphatically than we've already seen with his Sabbath his seventh-day Sabbath, and also his other Sabbaths, his Moedim, his set-apart times, that he says to keep forever. And, by the way, we're going to see him again. It's kind of fascinating. It's, it's like the stuff that's important, we don't have to ask, is it important? He makes it clear to us. That's why I say, and, and I've been repeating it several times, this, you, you can't unsee it. Once you see it, you can't unsee it because you ought to be able to read through Scripture and as you see all of these things at the whore church, and I keep using that term, yes, I know it upsets people, it ought to because it's a damned whore church. They have been leading people into idolatry. They have been saying, the hell with the God of the Bible. We know better than he did. We told him he got his Sabbath day wrong. He got pork wrong too. He got all kind. He got marriage wrong. He screwed that up big time. He doesn't even know what money is. He thinks it's gold and silver, like the Constitution. He thinks it's silver that's real money. He's he's made that clear. He thinks that the entire world economy is deserving of well. Hey, we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. What is now happening? It's coming apart at the seams. Back up, folks. The glass is already broken. So on all of these things, all of these things that he says are important. Um, yes. Six days shall work be done. The seventh day is a Sabbath of holy rest unto Yahuwah. Whoever does any work therein shall be put to death. Does he say it's going to happen immediately? Remember what happened with Adam and Eve? Same day, within the same thousand year period, they were in exile and they ultimately died. I guess you could say um, those of us that have been breaking the Sabbath, it's arguably still the same um, 1,000 year period, if nothing else. Now, when it comes to the whore church, they've been lying about it for 1,700 years or so, but um, every now and then we get people making a, a trip in the reverse direction. Let me pause. I, I hope that point is made. And I'll kind of summarize again the, the things that we have, have already seen here. Worship him as he specifies. Worship him as he specifies. It's not hard. It really isn't. It really isn't hard to keep the right day instead of sun god day. Uh, what does the mob tell you? Right? Do not follow after a mob to do evil. The mob says we don't like the God of the Bible. We may say he's Jesus our Lord, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, not do the things I say? They don't do anything, he says. They don't like what he wrote about marriage. They don't like his Sabbath. They don't like what he thinks is food and what's not food. There's not much about what he says. Well, we love everybody. What well, love is love. They've, they've taken love so far now that they are loving things he calls abomination. And people are letting them teach it to their kids. And whack off their breasts and genitalia. Alright, yeah, as you know, this kind of frosts my pumpkin a bit. When I see all the abominations that are now being done openly, that the whole church sits by and says, oh, I guess it's okay. Love is love. Jesus is love. Two guys and a parakeet wanting to uh, boink your kid in the back room of the school there. That's just fine. No, it's not, folks. This is all abomination. It all carries a death penalty. It's just that sometimes, and by the way, I can't help but quote Solomon, sometimes because the penalty against an evil work isn't executed speedily, in other words, he lets people get away with it for a while, they think they did get away with it. 
the heart of men is set to do evil. That's how Solomon put it. Ecclesiastes 8.11. Right? I call it, as an engineer, the lag effect. Ha ha, look at that. I stole something. I didn't get caught. Woo, woo, woo. Bang, you're dead. Oops. I didn't get caught right away. Okay? The, the penalty, uh, if it is delayed a bit, people dissociate. They, they don't see cause and effect. They take the poison poke, they take the booster, and then they get cancer and they croak in 14 hours after they get diagnosed with the fast-acting cancer from hell. But they don't connect it because, hey, you can't prove that it was the stupid thing that I did. Maybe you can't prove that it was me eating pork and doing all these things that the Creator says not to do. Uh, you can't prove any of that. Well, you know what, folks? Isn't that amazing? It's part of the uh, it's part of the problem, isn't it? I have a suspicion that if, in fact, um, Yah had had Moshe had just said, "All right, I've had it with these people. You take them. Yeah, you can start over with me." I think most of them wouldn't have gotten it. I think most of them would have gone to their graves and never even figured out what was wrong. I, that was part of the reason I think why he did the little thing with the uh, grinding up the golden calf and making them drink it. They got at least a chance to think about what was happening there. So there is a lot in this portion. And honestly, as I look at it, and I think, you know, as vitally important as it is, and as central as this is, what's what's been said is clear, right? Once you see it, like I said, you can't unsee it. Once you recognize how simple the concept is, worship him as he specifies, don't do things he says he hates, and say that's worshiping him. Oh no, the Lord knows, and he knows my heart. Yeah, it's desperately wicked and deceitful above all. Who can know it? His word is consistent. So, uh, what does Torah observant mean to you? It means read what he says. When the words are put in flashing red letters, set off, repeated over and over again, and he keeps telling us the same thing, uh, maybe he's trying to make a point. And I would say, once we see the point, it's impossible to unsee it. Now, we can still walk in rebellion. To whom much is given, much is expected, right? He makes that point clear, too. Once you see it, you had better learn to walk in it. Because um, you know there's no further redemption. You've been forgiven once. Don't keep putting him to the test. Don't keep making him sacrifice all over again. You might even say that almost becomes a blasphemy of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, right? To keep putting him to death again for the same thing that you already knew better. The words here. Now, they might as well be in flashing red. And, and indeed, if we had the right kind of HTML interpreter for Scripture, and that's what I'm encouraging folks, we need to develop that. Learn to see the tags, the HTML tags that are in the book. They're obvious. The the, the mechanisms are... I've, I've named at least three today, right? The Otbosh is one. Uh, repetition, redundancy, we call it in engineering. Uh, that is another one. And there are so many others in here, too. That are so clear, like the fact that uh, he uses this word, first use, in a negative sense, second use, vayakel, in a positive sense. What's the difference? Well, once we see it, it's clear. It, too, the use of the very same word in a different context, makes a point. It shows us what it means to be Torah observant. Torah observant. Instruction observant. Yeah, all I'm trying to do is to say we need to be able to see when he is instructing us. Now, sometimes, by the way, his instruction is fairly subtle. And uh, other times, as I like to joke about myself, in my case, he took a two-by-four, wrapped up, took a great big wind-up like a, uh, a baseball pitcher or a batter, and swung, clipped me right smack across the teeth and said, are you listening yet? That's not as subtle. 
So we have all kinds of ways of hearing his instruction and taking it to heart. Sometimes the things that will resonate with somebody, uh, those of us that are, uh, whether we're dealing with children or family members or people we love or people we hate, um, we never know exactly what it is that's going to finally resonate with somebody and they're going to wake up and go, whoa, all of a sudden I get it. Sometimes it's something really subtle. It's always fascinating to see and to watch. And uh, maybe we can recognize it in ourselves better than we do in others. But I've, I've had the experience. It's kind of a joyful one of seeing people get it. And the light flashes on and, and they, don't, they don't ever unget it once you've seen it. Again, it stays seen. So what I want to do from here is, um, because there is another part of this Parsha, it's actually the Haftorah, and I'll admit, everybody knows this, if you've heard me talk about it more than once, it's one of my favorite stories in the book. Okay, with that, some of you probably already know where I'm going to head, but wait a second, uh, let's just go. It's in um, the book of First Kings, chapter 18. And I'll admit, this is also one of my favorite characters, a fellow named Eliyahu. Eliyahu. My God is Yahoo. Isn't that a great name? Elijah, but I like Eliyahu better. The prophet of Israel. And as you know, Eliyahu is kind of a, I think he's, he's got a great sense of humor. He's kind of a surly dude. He tends to be kind of blunt. So yeah, I'll admit, I can relate. I, I can relate to this prophet probably more than I do most of the other characters in Scripture. I'd like to think that I try to, try to have a heart like David's. Truth of the matter is, uh, David has a heart uh, which you know is like Yah's own heart. And um, I admire David, love a lot of things about David. David made some mistakes. I've made mistakes. David knew how to uh, literally suck carpet, as a friend of mine likes to say. Uh, get on his knees and repent. You are the man. He doesn't argue. He just gets on his knees and says, you are right. And I ain't ever going to do that again. Okay, so as much as I love those other characters in the book, and I find w- wonderful things to, uh, to, to learn from them and emulate them, uh, something about Elijah just resonates with me. Okay, so in chapter 18, uh, we got this story. It's a fairly long story, and um, essentially he is told, go present yourself to one of the nastiest kings in the whole book, Ahab. And um, he does. And that's where I'll pick the story up. So, it happened that uh, Eliyahu goes, and Ahab the king sees him. And he said to him, is that you, O troubler of Israel? <laughs> now, I love this partly because I can picture the, um, I don't know, the FBI or some, uh, some satanic host in Washington, the District of Criminals, looking at people doing the right thing and saying, oh, is that you, O domestic violent extremist of America? When in fact, they've just finished, you know, uh, burning a bunch of uh, poison in Ohio and um, committing acts of treason and sending people to the gulags for crimes that they committed? Is that you, O troubler of Israel? Kind of puts Ahab in perspective, doesn't it? All right, he answers, uh, look, you got it wrong here. I'm not the one who's troubled Israel, but you and your father's house are, in that you have, get this, forsaken the commandments of Yahuwah and have followed after the Baals, the fake gods. He could be talking to the Pope, any of them. He could be talking to most of these people wearing their clerical collars, keeping their sun god day and saying, get your Christmas tree, your bunnies and your eggs, and let's do a little Ishtar worship. Let's dye some eggs, symbolizing the blood of children too. Because Jesus died for us on the cross. And we're going to do it all over again next year. Whoa. You have forsaken the commandments of Yahuwah and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, this is the prophet speaking to the king. Kind of presumptuous, isn't it? Now, therefore, send, gather all Israel to me. Interesting. Gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, 
450 prophets of Baal, in other words, the popes, the priests of your day, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table, your whore and wife. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel. He gathered the prophets on Mount Carmel. Isn't that funny? Ahab listens to this prophet. He does what he says. Elijah came to the people and he said, and now this is one of my favorite Eliyahu quotes in the whole book. Because this too, if you think about it, folks, no wonder this goes with the Torah portion that we've just read. You could have asked any of these people that were standing there with their um, their fake gods and um, their their Egel Maseka, or now their little uh, bunnies and their eggs, or their um, their little um, guy on a stick, or their little shrine with all their things that they pray to. Eliyahu says, how long will you falter between two opinions? If Yahuwah is God, well then, follow him. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I say? But on the other hand, if it's Baal, the Lord, isn't that funny? That's exactly what the word Baal means, is Lord. Huh. wonder why they use that term instead of his real name. It's almost like they prefer a fake Baal to the real yod heh vav the pattern, folks, is uh, unmistakable. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. If you who is God, follow him. But if it's Baal, the Lord, follow him. People, what did they answer? Maybe you know the story. Not a word. They sat there like little bumps on a pew. And then Eliyahu said to the people, I alone am left the prophet of Yahuwah. But Baal's prophets, well, there's 450 of them right here. Now, therefore, let them give us two bulls. And they pick one for themselves, and they cut it up into pieces, lay it on the uh, wood. But don't put any fire under it. I'll fix the other bull up, and I'll lay it on the wood, and I won't put any fire on mine either. And then you call on the name of, notice this, call on the name of your gods, Lord. And I'll call on the name of, I don't like the way it's written here in English. This is crappy translation. I will call on the name of Yahuwah. See, they took his real name out. So I guess if uh, I bet if, if Elijah didn't know any better and he had called on the name of the same Baal, this story would have had a different ending. Anybody? All right. I will call on the name of Yod Hey Vav Hey, and the one who answers that is the real God. He in fact is El. So all the people said, "Ha! Huh, that sounds like a pretty good idea. That it's well spoken." Now Elijah then said to the prophets of Baal, "You pick a bull." Run for yourself. Prepare it first. Here's a whole lot of you folks. You'll do it up big time. You call on the name of your God. Call on the name of your God. Don't put any fire under it. So they took the bull which was given to them. They prepared it. They called on the name of Baal. And I love this too. And I also, uh, you know, I like, this is where I say I like Elijah's sense of humor. Eliyahu's going to lay it on him here. Um, You call on the name of Baal. So they did. They they called on Baal morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, oh, Lord, um, help us, oh, Lord, hear us. But there was no voice. No one answered. Hmm. Then they leaped about the altar which they had made. So they're leaping around. They're doing all their, their good little stuff here. Uh, comes noontime. Eliyahu mocked them. By the way, guess what the root word there is? It's that same word um, that was used for Isaac's name. Laughter, mocking. Chatzach. And he said, cry aloud. Because, you know, he's a god after all, don't you think? Uh, either he's maybe he's out meditating, or he's on the crapper. He's literally out taking a whiz. Or maybe he's busy, or he's on a journey. Maybe he's sleeping. You need to wake him up. Now, this is a, uh, a translation that most English Bibles probably soft pedal a bit. 
But I think in the real original language, what is clear here is uh, Eliyahu is making fun of this God, and he's indicating kind of like, uh, you know, maybe it's like the Biden version. He needs his diapers changed. What's your God out doing? Cry aloud. He's a God after all. Maybe you need to wake him up. So they cried aloud, and they cut themselves. Notice how many kids do this today? I will leave that as an exercise for the listener to ponder on. But certainly it's not a, um, it's an old thing. It's just gotten to be more epidemic in recent years as uh, more Baal and less yod heh vav They cut themselves, as was their custom, it says, with knives and with lances. Oh, blood gushed out all over the place. And then midday, when it was past, they prophesied till the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But still, no voice, no one answered, no one paid any attention. So now Eliyahu turns his attention to the people. I bet they're watching some of this. He says, come near to me. So all the people came near to him. And then he repaired the altar of Yahuwah that had been broken down. He's waited all day. Eliyahu took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Yaakov, to whom the word of Yahuwah had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. That's an interesting place to put this, right? He is reminding them of their heritage. He is reminding them of who they are, literally, spiritually, figuratively, in every way. Israel shall be your name. Then, with the stones, he built an altar in the name of yod heh No, not in the name of the Lord, folks. The Bible, in most English renderings, is wrong. He didn't say in the name of Baal, or anything of the sort. He said in the name of yod heh vav He made a trench around it, big enough to hold two seahs of seed. He put the wood in order, he cut the bull in pieces, laid it on the wood. He said, fill four water pots with water. Pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Huh? No, you don't want to do that. You'll never get it lit. Yep, pour that water right on there. He said, do it. Do it a second time. They did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. It's soaked, man. It ain't ever going to light now. They did it a third time. So the water ran all the all over the altar, and it filled up the trench with water. There's water everywhere. came to pass at the time of the evening sacrifice, Eliyahu the prophet came near, and he said the following. <clears throat> I'm going to read this one correctly, too. Yahuwah, Elohim of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Notice the terminology. Let it be known this day that you are El in Israel and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. How's that for uh, some Torah observance, Torah obedience? I have done this at your word. I guess that's a pretty good summary, isn't it? Hear me, O Yahuwah, hear me, that this people may know he... Ani Yahuwah, right? Well, he says it in the first tense when yod heh says that they will know that I am. This is Eliyahu saying it in the third person. That they will know that you are Yahuwah Eloheka, And that you have turned their hearts back to you again. What's the root word there in the Hebrew? We know it. It's teshuva. To turn around. They've been going the wrong way. They've been worshiping the false god. Uh, can we see the parallels here? They think this Baal is the real God. They think the Lord. They don't know which Lord it is they're talking about. They think that's the one. Golden calf, little man on a stick, uh, sun god day, Ishtar, bunnies, trees, eggs. Let them know that you are the one who has turned their hearts 
made teshuva back to you again. Then, it says, the fire of Yahuwah fell. Not the fire of the Lord. Let's get it right. The fire of Yahuwah fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up all the water that was even in the trench. Now, guess what? You think that got people's attention? (laughs) Yeah. Now, when the people saw it, all of them, they fell on their faces and they said, let's get it right here too, not the Lord, the Lord. No, they said, Yahuwah, He is El. Yahuwah, He is El. They said it twice and they got His name right. And then Eliyahu said to them, "Uh uh-oh, this is politically incorrect, folks. I want to read it anyway. Yahuwah said, uh, Eliyahu said to them, Eliyahu, right? El, he is Yah. Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one of them escape. So they seized them, and Eliyahu brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. Whoa. That's not politically correct. Again, that's... Let me ask it again. Do you think the creator of the universe is serious when he says, I don't like you making fake gods and saying it's for me. Tomorrow we'll have a feast to the Lord. You don't even know what the hell you're talking about. Yeah, you do. You're talking about the one who rules over hell on earth. A fake god. All Everything about these stories, folks, is making as clear of a bright line distinction as it is, I guess you'd say, possible to make between the Lord God of heaven, no, the real one, yod Hey vav Hey, author of scripture, creator of heaven and earth, owns everything, including the cattle on a thousand hills, that one, and the fakes. Whether you call him the Lord, or Baal, or Lucifer, or the adversary, or old Scratch, or just, um, you know, the God of the whore church. Get your 501c3 tax exemption. Make your offerings here. Let's sing a little song, and then we'll go play golf afterwards. There is a bright line distinction. Then, Elijah goes back to Ahab, and he says, Go up, eat and drink, because there is the sound of the abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink. Elijah, Eliyahu, who went up to the top of Carmel, he bowed down to the ground, put his face between his knees, said to his servant, Go now, look towards the sea. Nothing there yet. Well, go again. Seventh time. Oh, there's a little cloud. Small as a man's hand. It's coming up out of the sea. Prepare your chariot. Go down before the rain stops you. Okay, so this um, drought at this point is finally over. And I guess that's an interesting commentary too, isn't it? Uh, What is the key here? Well, not only has the Creator made Himself known, but the people have finally gotten it. Yahuwah, He is God. Yahuwah, He is Elohim. Again, I love the story. And um, I guess uh, we shouldn't be overlooking the fact that there is a pretty strong message in here as well about who is God, who is not, and that there is, in fact, uh, there is some teeth in His Word. Now, I want to read one other thing. I was actually, I was not going to, going to talk about this very much today, but I, uh, I, I am going to mention it. The, uh, the Brit Hadashah part that, um, the, um, uh, you know, the, the people who put some of these things together and have been talking about it for years say, oh, here's the reading that should go with this, comes from the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 3. 
And there are some elements in here that have to do with... Um, well, the reason I'm going to mention is because I think there are some things that have been horribly mistranslated and taken out of context, and ultimately what? Uh, as um, Peter Kifa says, a lot of things that uh, Paul has written, they've been turned on their heads. They're often twisted by the unlearned and untaught, as they do a whole lot of other stuff, under their own destruction. Okay, so here's the line that people will um, they'll point out. Uh, what is passing away? What's passing away? Well, they'll tell you what's passing away was this Old Testament. All this stuff that God wrote that he got wrong. Well, fi- thankfully, we have popes and priests and potentates who can tell us, oh, we got, we got the uh, eighth day now, and that's better. And we'll have a pork sandwich in celebration of him. And uh, we don't like what he wrote about marriage. Uh, let's just um, do some little boys there behind the sanctuary. And so, no. Um, the Old Testament is not being done away, folks, and that's part of the reason why I think this translation is a bit disgusting. I'll read it the way it should be and the way that it is. Um, what's passing away was glorious. Well, what remains is much more glorious. All right, so far, so good. There's a metaphor here. It's a problem that it's going to be turned on its head. Therefore, since we have such hope, uh, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moshe, who had to put a veil over his face, because the children of Israel couldn't look steadily at the end of what was passing away. I don't think that that's necessarily a great way to put it. What was passing away? What was passing away, folks, was a lot of things. Uh, what had they just done? Prior to this, they had just committed one of the greatest acts of abomination in history. Not that we haven't seen repetitions of it ever since. What is Moshe? Moshe goes up, saves their bloody you-know-whats on the mountain, comes back down, and he's had 40 days of dealing directly with yod heh speaking face-to-face. His glory has passed before him. We, we see all of that in the story. And now his face is shining with beams. I guess that's a reminder that these people couldn't quite handle That's why he wore the veil. At least that's what um, uh, I read the story to say. Your mileage may vary. But it says this. Now, I'm going to find both something that is correct in here and the 80-20 rule still applies. Understand, when things are twisted and taken out of context, we can get it backwards and not see the real message. Let me read it again, exactly as the New King James Version renders it, and then I'll try to get it right. But it says, But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. What's Christ? Christos? Same as Baal. That's a Greek word that means gods. we got a million of them. Theos is the study of those little Christos, gods, little kings, all kinds of them. The gods here, gods there. What does Yeshua say? Matthew, they're going to tell you there's Christ all over the place. Don't believe them. Uh, is this the right one or the wrong one? What are they talking about? If uh, the veil of the Old Testament is taken away, I'm going to suggest they got the wrong one. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? I wrote it for you in that Old Testament. And I taught it to you as the Torah made flesh. And I told you I wasn't changing one yod or tittle. Somebody tells you different? I'm not the one who's lying. They are. Okay? The veil remains unlifted in the reading of what? Now, there's a Greek word here. We don't know what the Hebrew word was. But I'm going to suggest that it's just possible he was talking about the fact that there are a lot of things that people have been twisted on. Maybe there is a veil. They don't understand it. Why? Because the veil was taken away when Yeshua, the Torah-made flesh, came and said, Look, remember his first public address. It's the uh, rhetorical device that's employed over and over again in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard it said that. 
And thereupon he repeats all kinds of stuff that they've heard said. Some of it is consistent with Torah, some is not. But I'm going to tell you, he continues, what it really says. And then he tells you precisely what it was he wrote and how it fits and how the things that men have said that he should have written were wrong. And what is the end of it? Well, in Matthew 7, the last line in chapter 7 is, he taught as one having authority, not like the scribes, not like the Pharisees, because he is the authority. So, the veil is taken away in the real Mashiach. The veil covers some of the things that people have lied about with the Old Testament. Well, why? Because they're telling you it's done away with, among other things. Uh, the rabbis would tell you, oh, you know, there's a, there's maybe a dozen. Uh, you can count them on the, on the fingers of your hands, basically, all the commandments in Scripture that have to do with specifics of what you can and can't do on the Sabbath. Don't gather sticks on the Sabbath. Do keep it separate, holy unto Him. Don't cook food on the Sabbath. Don't kindle the fire on the Sabbath. But you know what? By the time of Yeshua, they had added 15, 16, maybe 1,700 additional commandments. How far you can walk, how to eat, how to wear clothes, uh, how to do everything on the Sabbath. If you throw a rock and it goes too far, you go pick it up and take it back. That's all BS, folks. As, is some of it at least um, reasonable? Uh, you can't, uh, can't flip a light switch. You'll hear nowadays. Well, how much work is flipping a light switch? Well, it's kind of like kindling a fire. Kind of like isn't a commandment from yod heh vav Now, if you don't want to flip a light switch because it's too hard for you, okay, fine. Don't flip a light switch. You do whatever it is that he has guided you to do. But don't command me that because you think flipping a light switch is kindling a fire, that I'm bound by your interpretation of something. I'm going to read what it says. The veil was taken away in Mashiach. In fact, he came because he was the Torah made flesh, and he taught what he in fact wrote. Put down for us in genuine print, sometimes with flashing red letters. Who better to be able to do it? But even to this day, when Moshe is read, a veil lies on their heart. Now that, folks, I'm not going to argue with. They hear it's Old Testament. What are the first thing we hear? Oh, it's all done away with. Don't do that anymore. We got better things today. We got bunnies and eggs and Ishtar. We don't need no Pesach, no Passover. Nevertheless, when one turns to um, the Lord, how about the real one? When one turns, actually the word there in the original Hebrew, we know what that word is, I guarantee you. It's teshuva. When one makes teshuva to the real God, isn't that what the story we just read about with Elijah? They made teshuva to the real God. If Baal be God, serve him. But hey, if it's Yodhevah, you better know the difference, serve him. What does Paul, Shaul, say? When one returns, makes teshuva to Yodhevah, the veil is taken away. Once you see it, you just plain can't unsee it. Now it says this, Yahuwah is the Ruach, the Spirit. Now, where the Spirit of Yahuwah is, there is liberty. I don't have the Greek here either, but I suspect that word is exousia in the Greek. It's the same word that gets rendered wrongly in Romans chapter 13, uh, when, uh, when the God of the earth... You know, big brother, when he says jump, you say how high? They take this word and translate it, however it is that the divine right of kings and the alternative to the one true God wouldn't have it rendered. Those whom he has made free are free indeed. Wherever the Ruach of Yahuwah is, there is liberty. Hey, folks, there is no greater liberty than that which he gives to us if we will walk in obedience to him. 
Paul says it this way, I'm a bondservant of the Most High, and you can't possibly be more free than that. For we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of Yahuwah, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Ruach Elohim. By, um, by the way, isn't that the same spirit that we just saw in Bezalel there? Gave him the ability to do all this great workmanship, build a place where the spirit of Yah could literally dwell among them. Again, the, the problem that I have with this rendering, and not just the rendering, it's, it's the way that it's normally rendered into English by those who believe the crap that they've been told on Sun God Day that it's all done away with. What does it mean to be Torah observant? Read what is written. Recognize that, you know what, we should worship him as he specifies, not as the whore church has told us that we should worship him with bunnies and eggs and Christmas trees. And oh, by the way, guess why they're still in exile to this day? Because whenever somebody reads the Tanakh, the Old Testament, the Torah, the instruction of the Creator, there is a veil which lies on their hearts. It's not taken away by Jesus, who they say did away with the law. No, it's taken away by the real Mashiach, the Torah made flesh, yod heh vav the son of El, who came and helped, delivered, taught, and then ultimately um, saved us. In him, the real one, Yahushua. Isn't that funny? The, the meaning of his name is real clear. Yah who saves the salvation of Yah. That's what takes the veil away. It's not hard. Once you see it, again, you can't unsee it. But the problem is, uh, what does it mean to be Torah observant? Well, we need to use our eyes, our ears, our heart. He can, in fact, write it on our hearts. He will. But uh, there's, a, uh, there's a requirement, right? Ask, and you shall receive. Study to show yourself to prove. We have to read it. We have to pray that he would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and show us the truth of his word. And once we begin to see it, and once we realize that, well, I like the way Jeremiah put it, we have inherited lies from our fathers, things wherein there's no truth, no profit. Our fathers, you know, the ones wearing the little clerical collars, call no man father, call no man teacher. Lots of things that we've inherited that are just plain wrong. And that is essentially the message. And by the way, again, the reason why I say this Porsche, this Parsha is so important is because there is so much in here that is do not do like this, and they're still doing like this. And it's part of what we need to come out of and be separate from in order to be able to see what we need to do the way he does specify to be worshipped. Keep my Sabbaths. Eat what I tell you is food. Use as money that which I have given you to be money. The real stuff, not fakes. Don't be involved with uh, various kinds of fakes saying, here's the God, in God we trust. Wrong God. The almighty fiat dollar is not a God in which to trust, and we're finding that out. So, the other thing I'm going to mention, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. I, I do encourage people to be aware, and I always, when I, um, when I talk about these things on the Sabbath, will we'll make the point. Um, Yeshua gave us example after example, right? The thief in the night, the, uh, the fig tree parable. Uh, the, uh, you can look at the sky and you can tell if it's going to rain tomorrow, but you can't know the times and the seasons, or you, you refuse to anyway, right? We're supposed to know the times and the seasons. We're supposed to be paying attention so that we're not caught unawares as by the thief in the night. Well, one of the thieves in the night came over the uh, the last couple of days. Uh, this, I suspect we're going to hear more about in coming days. And um, I saw the first uh, glimmerings of it on Wednesday, but we've actually seen it coming for a while. There was the... Um 
uh, Sam Bankster fraud. Remember that? And the, um, oh, what was the name of his um, uh, three-letter uh, acronym for, for some um, cryptocurrency? What's it? FTX, FTX. Thank you. Uh, yeah, uh, another another fraudulent, uh, not money, and essentially um, cryptocurrencies and so forth. We have the central bank digital currency. The Fed is coming. The Fed is going to bail everything out. Well, anyway, turns out what happened this week was uh, the second biggest bank failure in the history of the United States happened yesterday, and it's called Silicon Valley Bank (SVB). And um, earlier in Wednesday, there was a bank run that started on it. The stock collapsed. Let's see, I've got the numbers sitting here somewhere. It was down, I think, 42% one day, 47% on, I believe that was Wednesday. And then it took a 60% cliff dive on Thursday. And uh, so it was down 80%, basically 79% over just a couple of days. Finally, on Friday, the FTC, uh, the Federal Traffickers in Currency, they took it into receivership. So the bank failed. And again, it's, it's one of the biggest. It's the second biggest in history. Uh, it's not the biggest bank in the country. But here's a couple. I've got headline after headline here. Breaking overnight. Um, well, now let's start with this one. Panic in the streets. One bank crashes. An even bigger one runs for its life. Then it crashes. Now it's panic on Wall Street. Um, a bank run jolts markets. Silicon Valley Bank Financial uh, sells itself after attempts to raise capital fail. Uh, financial markets go down the rabbit hole. SNL crisis 2.0. Everybody's huddled on the wrong side of the boat we're seeing blind panic you get the idea and it was so it was so horrific that even the bogus allegedly good jobs data uh, was uh, was covered up in the swamp all right um and and what what is the concern here is what's called systemic failure and collapse because there's lots of incest among these banking entities where they sell one another things like bonds and remember the mortgage crisis and the uh, the big collapse there that turns out they had all essentially made bets on one another and it was all it was, it was a big incestuous uh, there's a there's a, a word that's used it's not a polite word a cf you may have heard in any case uh, contagion the connection to cryptocurrencies earlier in the week Silvergate Bank collapsed. Uh, that was one of the darlings of the crypto community. And it started in earnest with the collapse of uh, Samuel Bankman fraudsters and the cataclysmic destruction of FTX uh, late in 2022. And now FSBC has followed suit. Um, but within the circle of patrons, there is a thing called Circle. And it is a, um, a, a purveyor of what's called a stable coin. Turns out it wasn't so stable. This one's called USDC, and the claim is it's a uh, it's a crypto that is linked to the almighty fiat dollar. But it fell below a buck yesterday after the collapse. Why? Because it turns out that uh, SVB was providing a lot of the collateral. There ain't no collateral, and it ain't so stable anymore. So essentially, the um, the bottom line: forty two billion dollars was drained was drained from this bank in a matter of hours. They have negative equity. All of this, says the author, I'm looking at here, one of them in the Great Recession blog, after Jerome Powell, the bankster de tutti banksters, um, assured Congress that uh, things looked wonderful, steady for the banks. And no, us raising interest rates until we hear glass breaking, that will not be a problem. Crash! Smash! What was that sound? Glass breaking. So he wasn't even finished with the warning. And what was coming is already here. Some are saying maybe maybe this should be his, uh, his exit, his swan song, his black swan song. So... Um, 
uh, there's you know nobody wants to rush into a house of cards that's on fire. Lots and lots of commentary, and um, some of the folks are looking back at the last time we saw this. Remember, uh, 2008, Barclays, the British bank with an appetite the size of an empire, jumped in and digested parts of Lehman Brothers, taking an arm and a leg, according to its taste. Uh, the Bank of America, already a leviathan, swallowed Merrill Lynch whole, became even bigger and sweatier, and they they snacked on countrywide financial corporation for dessert. Dessert. Meanwhile, Wells Fargo. Swallow the entire wavering Wachovia Bank Citigroup, the world's uh, one of the world's largest corporations in the galaxy, um, buckled under the strains of its current economic load. Began looking for meat to save its fat and floppy, sabby, saggy body. Okay, so Merrill Lynch, I mean Morgan Stanley and Citigroup have been eyeing each other. Mutual cannibalism. Yep. These are the times, says this uh, blog piece, uh, when fat banksters feel like sharks and feed on one another to fatter the failures of their competitors. In other words, they eat those that aren't as, as uh, able to, uh, to eat others as they are. But they want insurance that they won't die of colic after eating such huge gorging meals. Okay, in other words, it's, it's a metaphor that has to do with banks that are uh, literally feeding on the, the carcasses of other banks as the carnage happens. By the way, if you ever saw It's a Wonderful Life, you, you get a, at least a small picture of all this. And um, they're feeding on internally rotting garbage with all of its buried problems. But as long as the Fed will backstop them, <laughs> we don't actually have to risk anything. We can just grow fatter and bigger. Then it's all okay. In other words, they'll do it because it's what they always do. And um, all of this happened quickly. In less than a week after one of the largest banks in the U.S. crashed all the way into receivership, the very same week where Jerome Powell assured Congress there was no apparent bank risk on the horizon because the banks were well capitalized with strong resources and the Fed was going to keep on raising interest rates until something broke, well, it did. It's broken. So I guess the bottom line is we'll see where this goes. Again, I mention all of this because I think it should be ironic, it should be funny. In God we trust. They put that on a currency, which is not even remotely constitutional. It ain't biblical either. I've pointed this out literally for years, and so has every Austrian economist and biblical economist that ever read the book. The Bible says, and it gives us example after example, even the very word is clear. Money, in Scripture, is kasef. The Hebrew word means silver. In Spanish, by the way, the same word plata means silver, and it means cash. Real money. Back when we had a constitution, it said, and I quote, nothing but gold or silver coin will be made a tender and payment of debt. Well, guess what? We haven't had honest money since, well, depending upon when you count, 1965. Certainly not 1973 when Tricky Dick got rid of even gold. And it goes all the way back to the incarnation of the Fed in violation of the constitution in 1913. It, it took a while for us to get here. But it's funny, isn't it? There is no silver in the money. It is not money anymore. It's currency. And what does the Bible say? It says, and I can turn to Deuteronomy 25. Look at Proverbs. You'll find half a dozen places in Proverbs alone where the creator of the universe in his word says, dishonest weights and measures, i.e., the almighty fiat dollar that used to be a value, a measure, a weight of silver. It hasn't been for what is that, um, almost 50 years now? No, actually over 50 years. The dollar has no relationship to honest money whatsoever. It is fully fiat. 
It is literally what the scripture calls, and like I said, Proverbs six times plus, an abomination unto Yah. It carries a curse. What is that, what is breaking the Sabbath carry? It carries a curse. It says there's a death penalty associated with it. These curses carry death penalties, but uh, right, sometimes it takes a while. A hundred years in the case of the almighty fiat dollar. Um, certainly 1971 is in the rearview mirror now. We're pushing 50 years on that score. How long does it take for the abomination of the dollar? That says in God we trust, but the answer is they sure as hell don't. Wrong God anyway. Wrong Baal. How long until it collapses? Well, we may see it on Monday. We might see another bailout. We've seen it over the years. Another kick in the can down the road. I honestly don't care at this point. Uh, there were pictures in the uh, in the news overnight of people lining up in, I believe it was San Francisco, trying to get their money out of Silicon Valley Bank. Looked a lot like 1932. And ultimately, let me just tie this back together with the Torah portion. Can you smell the fake God here? In God we trust. What's the God they're, they're looking at? What's the picture? Ishtar, Diana, Lady Liberty, only it's not liberty, it's a, it's a bondage, a debt bondage, because what is the dollar? It is not a measure of anything positive. It's actually a negative quantity. It's, a, it's issued into existence as debt. And now the regime is announcing they're going to add trillions upon trillions more. The hyperinflation is coming. Again, I'm not going to try to tell you I know when it's going to happen. So far, all we've got is just massive inflation, unlike any American living has ever seen in their lifetimes. A lot of them haven't figured it out yet, but wait, it's going to get a lot worse. What's the Fed going to do? The Fed is going to stick it to them by saying you can't afford the food that you can't afford to buy already. Well, just wait till you see what it's going to cost you to charge it on a credit card and pay 30% interest. It won't even be that. It'll be higher because when the inflation gets to be out of control, the interest rates will go even higher. All of these things basically are saying, here's what happens to a society which has what? Forgotten yod heh Forgotten his word. Done all of the things that he says don't do. And they still expect a blessing. Once upon a time, the United States was a nation founded on what? A self-evident truth. That there is a God. That the God who gave us life gave us liberty. That the purpose of government, said Thomas Jefferson and the founders, is to secure these rights to life, liberty, and property, the pursuit of happiness that come from the Creator. The singular purpose of government is to secure those rights from Him. How far have we come from that? Different gods. The God of the Bible is not welcome in the schools. He's not welcome in the Supreme Court. He's sure as hell not welcome in the White Whorehouse. He's not welcome in the swamp anywhere. They won't teach him. They won't allow his name to be spoken. They hate him. They worship alternatives. Look at the uh, halftime at the football uh, games, and you'll see exactly what we're talking about. We have come so far in every single direction that's wrong that maybe a little Agel Maseka would look kind of tame by comparison to the great big fake gods that are slammed down Americans' throats and taught to their children on Sun God Day and every other day all over the place. And it's not just America, of course, but America is arguably Babylon Central, you know, the greater Babylon metro area. The other places are following along. What is the whore church doing? Well, when Big Brother says jump, you say how high. we got a different God. we got Jesus who loves everybody, especially if what they want to do is abomination to the one that wrote the book that we won't let you read anyway. And you don't know his name because we took his name out of there. We're not even going to talk about that anymore. And yet all of these things that were prophetically 
told about, that we've been warned about, are coming to pass. What is the real yod heh vav and his son, the risen uh, Yah who saves? What does he say? If you love me, keep my commandments. He warned us about the exact deception that we're seeing now. And when lawlessness, Torahlessness abounds, he said the love of many will grow cold. Are we seeing it? I mentioned this, I'll throw this into the mix too, because to my mind, one of the, uh, uh, one of the most disgusting things that I saw was the execution this week of a, of a young law student, 25-year-old fellow in Utah, Chase Allen. If you haven't seen the video, uh, I'll, I'll warn you, you can't unsee it. But it's a traffic stop. Now, what does Chase Allen do? He was a, um, and by the way, I don't think he ever uses the term, I could be wrong, I have uh, not seen all of his writings or uh, the things that he believes, but I do know that the terminology that I saw that he did use was not sovereign citizen. In other words, not what the FBI and the cops have been told to, uh, to see and know, oh, if somebody calls themselves a sovereign citizen, they need dying. But that is literally what was what was said about this guy. I got the Daily Mail story here. It disgusted me. What's a sovereign citizen? That's somebody who doesn't believe in the rule of law. He doesn't believe in the rule of a fake God and what that God calls law. Okay? Um, the point is, I don't know um, Chase Allen's religious proclivities. I have a suspicion he probably is a follower of an evangelical-type version. He and I would probably have some differences, as you might suspect, about specifics. But I respect the man's patriotism. I respect his understanding that whatever, whether he called himself a constitutionalist or not, whatever was going on with the law, one thing is for sure, folks, the law that is being enforced, the law that is putting people in the gulag and the swamp, the so-called law that says we will allow invaders, but we'll take your money, we'll take your children, we will do things to them that your God calls abomination, and ha-ha, you can't stop us because you're a slave, whether you know it or not. Those whom he has made free, well, you're not free. When Big Brother says jump, you say ha-ha. you got a pastor, a preacher, a 501c3 there that will tell you who the real God is. And hint, hint, it's got nothing to do with that book, at least not once you get away from Romans 13. Old Testament, you can throw that away. It's been done away with anyway. When lawlessness abounds, the love of many will grow cold. And I watched the execution of this 25-year-old kid on videotape. Oh, well, on the, the uh, body cams of the cops. That basically, now, are these bad cops or are they just ignorant slime who are doing the work of Hasatan? Ah, there, I'll be kind as I can. They pulled the trigger on this kid. Who are they serving? I'll tell you one thing, it sure as hell isn't the God of the Bible. Because they were acting under color of law when they executed him. They pulled him over because of a what? He's got a, he's got a metal plate on the back of his vehicle. He, he doesn't have a right to travel. No, he's a slave of the state. And the young kid refused to suggest that he was a slave of the state, and they showed him, no, well, you'll be dead then. So, again, the problem here, and, and I would encourage folks, uh, look at this situation and understand it. But literally what happened was uh, he would not kowtow, and they had been trained that if somebody actually believes that crap from the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, that you have rights to be free of illegal search and seizure, that you have a right to travel, that you have a right to keep and bear arms, that you have a right to petition your government for a redress of grievances. Ha, ha, ha! We'll throw you in the gulag and call you a January 6th domestic terrorist and show you who's boss. There was a case overnight that was uh, the uh, one of the, the victims at January 6th. He's being charged with sedition. 
and now there's a motion to um, dismiss the charges because it turns out that the FBI committed sedition by throwing away the evidence that they had manufactured to charge him with. We're talking about lawlessness abounding and people that are saying, I don't like it. Are they saying it for the wrong reasons? Maybe. Is it possible that uh, you know Chase Allen goes to, to church on Sun God Day? I don't know. The point is, we probably have more in common than we have in the way of differences on that score. And if I was to be asked, uh, you know, who would I rather go worship with? The guy who was willing to, um, as it turned up, give his life in, in support of what he believed? Or a fellow who, without hesitation, along with about six others, riddled his dead body full of bullets? And did it, as Yeshua said, they'll do this thinking they're killing you and serving God. It's just the wrong God. Things are coming to a head, is my point. They're coming to a head economic. And guess what? As one thing comes to a head, follow the money, recognize the abominations, the bleed-over effects, all of these things, they all go together. And they tend to go together really, really fast once they come, once they come apart. There's a line from, from Ernest Hemingway, so you remember the story. Uh, he uh, asks a man who had gone bankrupt, had once been very wealthy, how did, how did it happen? He said, well, slowly at first, and then all of a sudden. That's exactly what we're seeing as a country literally has gone to hell because it has chosen to do exactly what we saw here. Make us, we want gods. Hey, we'll have a feast to the God of the Bible. Only it's not. Worship him the way he specifies. Not the way the whore church and the whore house says that uh, we're going to worship him or else. And if you don't like it, we'll sacrifice your kids to our God. How's that? And people sit still for it. They allow it to happen. The pastors in the pulpits, their 501c3 checks still burning little holes in their grubby pockets. They put up with it. People are putting up with it. I watched this young man, and I couldn't, I, I, I actually talked to David Justice. We did the show, the Drive Time Friday show yesterday. David said, you know what? That hit me. That was me. That was me that they executed. Because David says, I've done that. I've had one of those plates on my car. I might not agree with all of the, the legal theories that this kid was espousing, but I can understand where he got to where he is. And the point is, they are teaching police that if somebody believes in the Bible, if they actually believe that there is a Bible and a God who is superior to any government of man, as a matter of fact, that's exactly what John Adams said. We serve a government that is superior to any earthly government of men. Over and over again, you can read the, the words of the founders. This is about rights that come from God, the purpose of which governments are instituted among men to protect. That's not what they're doing. They have become gods. They have become exactly this golden calf. And their money tells you what they serve, what they worship, what they tax-exempt, what they modify kids' bodies what they call sexuality, and what they call marriage, and what they license, and what you're not allowed to have, every single thing about them tells you exactly who they serve. It is as pagan as it can get. It is as antithetical to the Creator as it can get. And we're seeing it. And we're seeing the bitter harvest. So, I guess, bottom line here is, um, take a look, be aware, know the times and the seasons, and recognize that in the last week, on just about every front, we have seen things literally break apart, break loose. Oh, and I didn't even mention, but some of you here already know, the Tucker Carlson thing on Monday night, right? 
Tucker got the video, or at least some of it, 40-plus thousand hours of video that says, and I'm going to summarize it real briefly. Well, as a matter of fact, Tucker summarized it pretty briefly, too. They've been lying to you. They've been lying to all of us. They lied about everything associated with January the 6th. They lied to us all. He exposed the fraud, the kangaroo court cover-up. What happened? Chucky Schumer, the evil Chucky doll, came right out and threatened Fox News and Rupert Murdoch. Don't you dare let Tucker air any more of that video that makes us look like the criminal bastards that we are. Stop it. Stop it now. What happened? Come Tuesday night, a lot of people tuned in. What did Tucker have? I uh, put it this way on the news the other day. Cricket, 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 crickets. The sound of silence. There was no follow-up at all. Tucker got the message. You've been gutted, boy. You shut up. You talk about something else. And the uh, the story says he had to change his show. Uh, they, they didn't take him off the air, at least, like Chucky wanted and Mitch McConnell wanted. But they basically shut him down. And the rest of the week went by, and guess what? No more video. So, as people are figuring it out, Bible promises us that those things that are hidden will be revealed. Big Brother, however, those who serve Hasatan, aren't about to let that happen. So they're they're pulling out all the stops. And uh, now we're seeing it. Um, they're executing people in traffic stops that dare to suggest that uh, they know that there is another God and that the one that people are worshipping is neither the God of the Bible nor the government that they were told that they had. And all you have to do is look at a, at a senile, diaper-wearing, diapered at both ends, criminal whose only requirement and capability for office is that he's been hauling water and uh, uh, on the take for decades, and he hates the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and everything associated with the God of the Bible almost as much as some of the other people that he serves, like the Communist Chinese. There is literally nothing about this, again, that once you've seen, you can unsee. Once you recognize how thoroughly corrupt, and I've said it for at least two years now, they want people dead. Look at the poison poke. They lied about every, I mean everything associated with that. They didn't want you to see the data on the people that they killed in order to shove this this thing into people's arms for 75 years. They wanted it hidden. Fauci, this week... It came out, oh, you know, the lab leak. No, it wasn't a lab leak. It was developed with your taxpayer bucks, paid for with fiat that is not real money, that's abomination, for the purposes of what? Killing billions of people. And it wasn't a lab leak. That's part of the big lie. It was a release coordinated worldwide with a two-part weapon, not just the poison poke and the, uh, well, the poison poke was part two. Part one was get people afraid so that they'll take the poison poke. Well, actually... Poison pokes number two, three, four, five, and six, and any more that they may want to do. And don't think that the who and those that are pushing for global anti uh, anti God of the Bible world government aren't planning it right now. So again, um, the more we recognize, the more we see it, the more we can't unsee it. We are we are staring at the biggest golden calf, Egel Maseka, in world history. Uh, it has lots of names in Scripture. Egypt, Babylon, Baal, Molech, the bad guy, the adversary. But it's the same anti to yod heh fake Messiah, you name it, that has been there since the beginning. It's just that now we're seeing it at a level 
that is, uh, well, I guess you'd say of truly biblical proportions on every score. And and I say that, and I, as, I, as I'm wrapping up here, I, I, I look and I, I recognize, this is a reaction I've seen far too often. People will say, oh, well, then there's no hope. Oh, look at Big Brother. The Big Brother is so powerful. Big Brother owns all. He knows all. He sees all. He's got 5G. He, he watches me when I'm watching TV. He listens to my toaster oven. He knows what's in my refrigerator. He knows when I go out. He, he watches me on OnStar in my car. I, I can't cash a check. Uh, I'm going to have the central bank digital currency, and I'm going to have to take the mark of the beast, or I won't be able to eat and feed my children, and I really care about my kids. Oh, no, uh, it's, it's overwhelming. Uh, I mean, and, and the Bible says it. Who can make war with the beast? I guess I better just give in. I'll just get my mark, and I'll just take it. And besides, with my preacher, he, I, he, I gave him my, my gift the other day. I, I put my 10% in. He says I won't go to hell if I take it. And you believe this son of a bitch? You believe this servant of Satan? You believe this guy who's taken money to sell you out? Can I help you? If you will not have eyes to see, if you choose to follow evil... If you aren't going to listen and learn, maybe there isn't any hope for you. But on the other hand, the Bible is written to the remnant, to those with eyes to see, to those who at least know to pray, to be given eyes to see. And the message isn't make war with the beast, folks. Chase Allen found out the hard way. You know, you don't make war with the beast. There were six of them had their guns pointed at his chest, and they executed him. Four seconds flat. At the point where that encounter started, he had less than three minutes to live. You don't make war with the beast. You come out of her, my people. Come out of her, be separate. Do not participate in the sins so that you don't partake of the plagues. What do we need to come out of? Well, I think it's obvious. Silicon Valley Bank, people that waited to try to get what they thought was money, but it never was really anyway, too late. What you thought was your wealth is gone. Evaporated. Just like Chase Allen's life. Store up your treasure in heaven, he says. But understand that if you have treasure here, if you have wealth here, it's real or it's not. There's no in-between. Can you survive what's coming? Not to make war with the beast, but to recognize, okay, I need to come out. I need to specify that I do not serve. If, if Baal be God, serve him. If yod heh vav heh is God, serve him. Hey, it's the same choice. It's real simple. Do not follow after a multitude, a crowd, a mob, to do evil. Even if they, they're the whore church. Even if they say, oh, we'll get enough people together, we'll steal everybody else's stuff, and then we'll have a, we'll have a nice party. A little orgy will live for a little while longer. The choice is clear. The choice is stark. It's never been more urgent, but it's always been every bit as obvious. Do we understand what the fake is and what the real is? Because Torahlessness, lawlessness will abound. The love of many has grown cold. All of the things that Matthew 24 is talking about. Have we seen every single one of them? No. But are we seeing all of them beginning to play out? You betcha. Every single element is playing out. And we're watching it. And again, it's not hard. It's not too hard for us. And ultimately, this is the part that I, I, I know as I, as I talk about this, I can see people's eyes glazing over sometime. Because I, I don't really believe that my Christmas tree or my little bunnies and my eggs, oh, I love those chocolate bunnies. I'm going to get them. I'm gonna, I'm, after Ishtar Sun God Day, I'll get some bunnies on sale. I'll bite their little ears off. Ooh, isn't that good stuff? 
uh, kind of like that quail, right, that they got there in the desert. That was good stuff, too. They died shortly thereafter. Hmm. Is there a parallel? I can't help but think that there is. It starts by recognizing the real simple lesson. Worship him as he specifies, as he tells you he wants to be worshipped. You cannot tell him, look, I demand, damn it, you God of the Bible, that I don't even know your name, that you protect me from all the crap I've been eating, all the crap I've injected into my body that you said not to anyway, all the stuff that I've been doing that you said don't because it carries a curse, but I want your protection now. Oh, really? Based on what? Your obedience? No, I said the prayer. I got my get out of hell free card right here. My my 501c3 pastor says if I give this amount of money, I, I can I can go to heaven. Great. You take it up with him. You let that God save you. Right? All of the things the scripture says are consistent. It's it's almost like when, when we talk about these things, people say, well, you know, yes, but, but I, I don't care about um, worshiping on the correct day, and I don't care about not eating pork, and I don't care about, uh, you know, um, what it says about marriage and the fact that I, I can't marry that, that guy that lives down the street. Um, I, I just want to know, how do I get food, right? How do I get my money out of the bank? Uh, how do I do the things that are important right now because I didn't prepare for all the stuff that, ooh, I may be seeing is, is happening? Is it too late? It is if you start the wrong way. Worship him as he specifies. Come to him on his his terms first. What does it say? Make teshuva. Right? Turn around. That was the lesson here from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. They turned. We're going to see this in the next few Torah portions. It's going to play out. Uh, it turns out that one of the remedies here for this people that has committed this evil thing, and we'll talk about this over the next few weeks, they're going to get together and they're going to build something positive based on his word. That's a good start. Those are the kind of things that we need to be thinking about and doing now. And I realize, again, uh, this is the part that is uh, it's both frustrating and yet it's poignant and telling. People will say, okay, 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 I get it, I get it, I need to keep Sabbath, but... No, there's no but. I get it, I get it. I shouldn't be eating pork if I expect that the next bioweapon isn't going to kill me. But, what part of the word obedience don't you understand? What part of shall not? Whether it shall not be infringed or thou shalt not commit adultery or murder or slaying is a better way to put it. Don't you understand? Or, if you love me, keep my commandments. Or, Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest unto yod heh You do any work on that day? Even if you think you need to because you, you haven't prepared up until now, you're going to die. You're going to die. You expect his, his provision, and yet you're not even willing to keep his Sabbath. No, I've got to work hard, Mark, on the Sabbath day because I don't have enough food set aside. You can't set aside enough food. You better get the right priorities in place first. Because without his protection, you might as well just hang it up, dude. You're meat. So again, the, the kinds of things, and I know this is the part that's frustrating. All of us have dealt with this. The kinds of things that we say, wow, uh, uh, why is it important that I study all this stuff about the Old Testament and about his Sabbath and, oh, there's this Passover thing coming up. And what, what the heck difference does Passover make to me? Uh, I care about Jesus and Easter. Easter Sunday. You missed the point. You missed the whole point. It's got nothing to do with a pagan bunny goddess. 
and sacrificing children. It does have to do with the things he says to keep, observe, do forever, throughout your generations, in all your dwelling places. Get the leaven out of your house. If you're not doing the things he says to do, why, oh why, would you think you can remotely expect his protection? Well, I said the prayer. Well, you show me where that prayer is in Scripture. You show me the promises. I'll show you the promises. I'll show you that he says if there is a blessing, it's for obedience. You walk in obedience, you walk in blessing. You walk in rebellion, here are the curses. Guess what, folks? Open up the newspaper. Look on the Internet. You'll see the curses. You'll see them played out right there. And come Monday, I suspect we're going to see more of them. And they're going to accelerate. And as it gets worse and worse, the love of many will wax colder and colder. And we're going to have to deal with the fact that, um, yeah, do not follow after a mob to do evil. Because I guarantee you, that's what's coming next. When things get truly ugly, the same mob that demanded that Aaron make the golden calf will be demanding all kinds of other things. And uh, if you've got a little bit of a, of a read of prophecy in Scripture, you'll see exactly what that means is coming. Again, it's not hard. But it is important. Choose this day whom you will serve. If Baal be God, serve him. Yeah, but if it's yod heh his real name. Let's get that part right. That's easy. If it's yod heh then serve him. Oh, yeah. And let's do it the way he says to. Let's study. Show ourselves approved. Let's worship him the way he says. And let's get rid of the crap. The pagan stuff. The golden calves, by whatever name. And do it right. And it isn't hard. Okay, um, let's pray. Yahuwah Eloheinu, Yahuwah Echad, I will we come before you. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you for those things that you have told us, that you have shown us. And we thank you, Father, too, for those things that you have written down for us that we can watch and learn from and um, hopefully never do again. We pray that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Show us the lessons that we need to take from the examples in Scripture that are positive, that should be emulated, and from the examples like we see in this Torah portion that are things we should avoid, like the plague that they are and like the plagues that they bring. Again, Father, your word says that we should pray that we be counted worthy to escape these things that are coming upon the earth, so we do. We pray that we would be found doing your work when you return. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to walk that narrow path to veer neither to the right nor to the left. Above all, we pray, Father, help us that we would be good and faithful servants unto you. Show us the things we need to be doing now. The things that are practical, the things that are spiritual, the things that are economic, the things that are associated with family and that are associated with sharing and speaking your word and witnessing to those who would be called by your name, those who are coming out, those who are trying to seek your face and walk in obedience. Guide us in this time ahead, we pray. And we thank you, Father, and praise you. Give us your healing as well, because we know that there are poisons, there are things that are being done to us, sometimes whether we know it or not. Give us two or three witnesses for the things that we need to be doing. Give us your healing, for you are Yahuwah Rapha, our healer. By your stripes, we know we are healed. But help us to walk that out, to have the kind of faith that moves mountains, greater than a mustard seed even, so that we might do those things and even the greater things you have said that we would do. Give us your healing, Father. Give us your strength. 
We believe, but strengthen thou our faith, we pray. And all of this we ask in your set-apart name, for you are our King, our Savior, our Redeemer. You are the Torah made flesh. You are our help in times of trouble. You are Yahuwah Zadiknu, Yahuwah Vitzivenu, Yahuwah Zevuot, our banner, Yahuwah Nisi. You are all-sufficient, our El Shaddai, and we thank you and praise you. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's begin to wrap up uh, the live portion with the Aharonic blessing. We remember that Yahuwah spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak and turn to Aharon and his sons and say to them, This is how you bless the Benai Yisrael. Say to them, Yerekka Yahuwah Barishmareka, Yair Yahuwah Panavaleka Vichoneka, Isaiahuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhu